Hey, Chad Brown here. You may remember me as a linebacker in the NFL or as a reptile breeder and the owner of Pro Exotic. I've been herping since I was a boy, and I've dedicated my life to advancing the industry and educating the community about the importance of reptiles. I also love to encourage the joy of breeding and keeping reptiles as a hobbyist, which is why my partner Robin and Marklin and I create the Reptile Report. The Reptile Report is our online news aggregation site bringing you the most up-to-date discussions from the reptile world. Visit TheReptileReport.com every day to stay on top of the latest reptile news and information. We encourage you to visit the site and submit your exciting reptile news, photos, and links so we can feature outstanding breeders and hobbyists just like you. The Reptile Report offers powerful branding and marketing exposure for your business, and the best part is it's free. If you're a buyer or a breeder, you got to check out the Reptile Report Marketplace. The Marketplace is the reptile world's most complete buying and selling destination full of features to help put you in touch with the perfect deal. Find exactly what you're looking for with our advanced search system. Search by sex, weight, morph, or other keywords and use our buy it now option to buy that animal right now. Go to marketplace.thereptilereport.com and register your account for free. Be sure to link your Marketplace account to your Ship Your Reptiles account to earn free tokens with each shipping label you book. Use the Marketplace to sell your animals and supplies and maximize your exposure with a platinum ad that also gets fed to the Reptile Report and our powerful Marketplace Facebook page. Buy and selling? Use shipyourreptiles.com to take advantage of our discounted priority overnight shipping rates. ShipYourReptiles.com can also supply you with the materials needed to safely ship your animals successfully. Use ShipYourReptiles.com to take advantage of our discounted priority overnight shipping rates, the materials needed to ship your reptiles successfully, live customer support, and our live on-time arrival insurance program. We got you covered. Visit TheReptileReport.com to learn or share about the animals. Click on the link to the marketplace, find that perfect pet or breeder. Then visit ShipYourReptiles.com to ship that animal anywhere in the United States. We are your one-stop shop for everything reptile-related. Reptiles. Um, I was lucky enough to be able to uh, 
co-host a uh, episode of GTP Keeper Radio and uh, with Bill and um, Brad was the guest. So uh, when, when we had that episode, there was uh, a topic that I thought would be cool to hit on, and he keeps some other cool reptiles. Um, I know in that episode we mostly hit on chondros, which we will get a little chondro talk and such, but. Uh, I don't know. He was a cool guy to listen to, and uh, I think the perspective uh, from a reptile keeper and, and breeder that's also a vet is uh, is pretty priceless. So, um, yeah. So, what's up, Owen? Not much. We're digging out from the snowstorm still constantly up here. So, uh, but it was cool to see we, how – what was that? I was going to say, yeah, we got clobbered pretty bad, huh? Well, it was horrible. I got like three feet up here. But it was cool watching everybody who was affected by that storm, like what their animals mm-hmm. were doing during. Everybody, like tons of people were getting locks and all that stuff. And I kept going down and checking my room, and nobody was doing anything. Like no one was locking up. Everybody was just kind of staring at me. So oh, no. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. I was like, I'm like, come on, guys. It's like, this is what you're supposed to do. So I don't know if, you know, they were all just being really sneaky, if I was going down at the wrong times. I did notice that some animals that were, like, on the opposite ends of cages from each other were now, like, curled up together. So maybe we're getting in the right direction. I don't know what the hell's happening down there. If eggs show up, they show up at this point. Whatever. And the the, yeah. the brettles finally stopped looking for food. So um, That's a good sign. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, those you can never get those things to not to stop being hungry. They're like the olive pythons. They're like it's sixty degrees. Don't care. Feed me. So you know it's uh, when they finally stop looking for food. I'm like, all right, we're going in the right direction now. So they'll be coming up probably in the beginning of February. So I'm excited. It's like the next cool. step of breeding season. Yeah, I think I'm at the point now where I'm just going to start warming back up. I think I have. Uh, Three girls grab it. Um, mm-hmm. I have that uh, Ocelot Jag that was bred with an albino. Yes. I believe. Uh, awesome. I believe she's grab it. Uh, I think my tigers um, with the albino. Uh, I think they're both grab it. Um, oh shit! More tigers head albino for Owen. Yeah. Sorry. And. Uh, <laughs> My uh, coastal girl, my M-Pen coastal girl. Um, Damn it. I believe she's, another thing. she's grabbing. Another thing for Owen, yeah. <laughs> Crap. <laughs> yeah, so, um, so yeah, not a big season for me. Um, I don't know, man. Those, the, a couple of those two girls, I don't know. They must be broken or something. <laughs> I don't know. I can't, I well, can't well, get them to go. We need to sit here and think is that it, it's not, the season ain't over yet. It It, it is. Yep. Jan- January. I mean, uh, I have some females that haven't even been in with their boys yet. I mean, it's just that's the way it is because the boys are like I have like those males are going to multiple females, so it's like this is your first priority, and then second priority is this one. And I've had girls lay eggs, coastals, and uh, stuff like that. I've had them lay eggs in um, July um, and August. So you're, you're you're by nowhere means done with the season. So, you know, yeah. don't don't let everybody just cuz you you might have to start warming up doesn't mean that season's over. Keep putting boys in with girls because they might surprise you. Um yeah. and the other thing is you might want to hold off on 
warming up because we're expected to get snow Friday and then again on Tuesday. Oh, man. <laughs> More snow? I yeah, can't take it. Yeah. yeah, I said it. Yeah. So that is what they are uh, saying. So hopefully it's not too crazy. Yeah. So Okay. Well, that's cool. Um, oh, interesting. Well, I don't know. I mean, I wonder... I wonder if it's one of those things that I think that you may be right. Like, I think that they should fit into this, you know, cookie mm-hmm. cutter program and maybe they go later or they, they went sooner. Maybe they ovulated at a different time and I'm just not paying attention to it because I'm not looking at that for that. So maybe that's why I can't get them to go. I don't know. Right. You know, hey, 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 let me put it this way. I had a few years ago, I had a, I had a clutch of bread alive laid and then a week later I had a clutch of coastals. So it's like, um, one of you is a spring breeder and one of you is not. So what the hell are we doing? So, you know, <laughs> yeah, don't, does, don't ever, don't ever peg it, you know. <laughs> God damn it. It's like when you almost want to, like, start, you want you grab the complete carpet python, you go to the coastal page, you smash it against their cage, and be like, yeah. that's how you're supposed this to breed. You. <laughs> this, yeah. this is you. This uh-huh. is what you're supposed to. So it's, it, it, sometimes it happens. I mean, I had coastal babies, my infant female, um, her eggs hatched in September. And I'm like, crap. And then those were the worst babies ever because I tried to get them to feed and it was September. And then we were like, it, it, the weather outside was messing with them. The entire clutch took me forever to get going. It was horrible. So you're not out of the woods yet. Yeah. Well, um, one of the topics that we, uh, we're going to be talking about tonight um, and, you know, when I listen back to other rept- – I listen to all the reptile podcasts, I've never really heard any in-depth talk about the subject that nobody likes talking about, <laughs> and that's mites. Um, no one likes mites, no. No. No, nobody likes it. Nobody no, likes don't, don't about say it. the name. Nobody likes answering the questions. <laughs> Um, you know, and every and there's different approaches, and people think different things. And I thought, since you know Brad has a background in being a vet, I thought it would be uh, would be awesome to hear his, um, you know, his take on uh, you know just the different ways of uh, you know. I think the most important thing is prevention. Um, you know, uh, uh, so if you follow, you know, I hope hopefully you can give us some tips, which I, I'm sure a lot of people know. Maybe new people don't know. Um, maybe they don't follow it, um, you know, or maybe they don't know, like, all the steps that they should take. Uh, so we're going to hit on that. I think I think a big part of uh, taking care of mites is understanding the life cycle of mites. And there's a article on VPI's website that uh, pretty much goes in depth about, about that whole thing. Um, and I think that that's... Uh, that really helps on how to treat them, you know, if you right. know how they're right. going to, uh, you know, breed and how, you know, when they're going to hatch and all that kind of stuff, you can sort of uh, be ahead of it. So to to destroy our enemy, we to destroy our enemy, we must know our enemy, kind of thing. It, it, oh, and mites are you? It's mites. Are, it, it, go ahead. I was going to say this might sound crazy, but yeah. Why, 
I don't know. Maybe I guess it's just it's so difficult to deal with. I guess or like uh, you know. Well, it's like just if you get fleas on a dog, you're like people shoot don't the dog. like say. Oh, but um, you, know oh, no, you don't shoot the <laughs> you don't shoot the dog. But um, they don't freak out like reptile people do. Well, imagine. Well, uh, imagine if you're a big dog breeder. Of course you do. Because I got to treat everybody. It's it's basically the thing of imagine yeah, if you true. have mites. Imagine if you have mites and you're a guy. No, I don't want them. <laughs> we're gonna have to if we're gonna do this episode. Um, imagine if you're a guy who has a huge collection, and now imagine if you're one of those guys who uses like sandy chips or mulch because now all of that has to come out, and all the cages have to be put on paper, and all the snakes have to be treated, and you have to do all of this all the time. It, it is a huge ass hassle, and I do know some people that actually. Um, have had snakes infections or get stressed out and then get sick as a result of mites or um, yeah, from if they attack like all a, that yeah, if they attack like a little baby, um, uh-huh. they, they, they become like anemic or something like that. So there's, there's a lot of shit that can go wrong. I hate the little buggers. Um, but you know, yeah. Well, see, it, like it, when it, we talk about it, I feel like I'm talking out my ass, so that's why I wanted Brad to talk about it because you know, yes, I don't really have that much experience <laughs> with them, you know what I mean? But I'm sure as a vet, that probably is. I, I would imagine that respiratory infection is uh, the thing that, imagine, that probably pops up the most, right? Yeah, and, I, and I imagine that he's uh, – those would probably be my two things. Um, and I imagine that he sees uh, a lot of the problems that people can go to their vet with is either poor – keeping or something like that or they just bought a baby so he probably sees animals in rough shape a lot and mites has got to be like the first thing i mean we've gone we've all been at reptile shows some of them very very big and classy reptile shows and you you just gotta no matter what you gotta treat the animals i mean you gotta i treat all my guys uh going out and coming back in um you know i I, if if we're coming back from a god no, 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 go ahead. Well, I mean, if we're coming home from a show, I have the solutions and stuff that I use mixed up and ready to go, and everybody takes a dip before we go back into the room because I'm not about to, you know, I don't know if the guy next to me was as clean as he should be or somebody was handling something over at that table and then came over and handled one of my guys. I mean, it's just the way it goes. So, yeah. So real quick before we get Brad on, we're talking about uh, breeding accomplishments and out of uh, yeah, I thought we should give a shout out to uh, Ryan Young from Molecular Reptiles, oh. um, who uh, oh. he produced a clutch of southern white lip pythons for the third year in a row. That's a pretty oh. awesome task, if you ask me. I mean, oh, you know, yes, they're not the easiest snakes to breed. He's got to dial them in. You know, no, they're so my favorite. Uh, Damn it. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like, I love that he's able to do this now, and this is his third year in a row because he's got that pair dialed in. And we've talked about this as being the success when it comes to certain other species like bolins and stuff like that is having a pair that can year after year produce babies. And those babies can now be raised up and then potentially produce year, like eventually when they get old enough, on their own. So it's like the establishment of a captive born and bred population finally. So I would love a pair of those white lips. Um, and I will talk to Ryan about that later on this year 
And if we're capable to do that, <laughs> I, I will. The problem is, is that I keep having this little bug in my ear that goes, no, Owen, remember, Australia. And I'm like, damn it. <laughs> so um, <laughs> it might be one of those, like, uh, I'll wait patiently and be crying on the inside as we're getting on the plane to Sydney or uh, wherever we're going. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it'll be cool. That should be yeah, definitely. No doubt. So um, the other thing I wanted to shout out real quick is um, the Southern Carpet Fest has announced uh, their date um, <laughs> for the for the second annual Southern Carpet Fest. It's April 30th, uh, 2016. Um, and, you know, if you couldn't make it last year, Owen, <clears throat> um, definitely should try to get down there. I'm going to be, oh, and, yeah. as long as I can get off work, which I, it shouldn't be a problem, I'm going to be down there, uh, and it should I will be try a blast. It. When you start getting everything in order, let me know, because I will see what I can do. Because um, yeah. I can't let you go on traveling with, like, you know, by yourself. You could get lost. You're you're awfully scared. Yeah, I could. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's very true. Actually, could you just be my carry-on? I mean, do you fit in the overhead portion? <laughs> <laughs> I probably could. No problem. <laughs> anyway, um, the, uh, enjoy the flight click. I mean, like, it, um, uh, it would be one of those things that's cool, and it's really kind of like the Southern Carpet Fest has, you know, uh, announced their um, their date, and I'm like, oh, yeah, we should get on that. <laughs> so it's like it's like they're, yeah. they've already set up an announcement. I'm like, crap, we're, we're the slackers in this group now. Damn it. Yeah, we're <laughs> so, yeah. Usually we're the first we'll one, but this year it's going to be Southern, so. Should be yeah. a good time. Yeah. Well, yeah. enough yeah. of us rambling. Let's get let's get yeah. Brad on here and get this going. Uh, so, hey Brad, welcome to Morelli Python Radio. Glad to uh, be talking to you again. Hey, thanks a lot, guys. It's an honor. I wouldn't go that far, but all right. <laughs> <laughs> That's a it's it's a pleasure. There you go. <laughs> let's stick with that. Um, uh, Brad, can you? Uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself um, and how you got your start into reptiles. Yeah, sure. Hang on, I'm gonna I'm gonna actually switch earpieces here because this one keeps cutting in and out. But go ahead. Let's see. You guys still there? Yes. I was. I, I had my my uh, headset in and I could hear you in stereo, which was extra cool. <laughs> but it keeps cutting in and out. So it was like I had one of you in each uh, ear, like the like the the devil and the angel on one shoulder, and you guys were talking about carpet fest, and I was getting all sorts of devious thoughts. Deviant thoughts. Uh, <laughs> mm. um, let's imagine, let's imagine nice. real quick who would be who, because I already know the answer, but go ahead. Um. <laughs> yeah, so um, sounds like a great time, though. I've obviously never made it down to Carpet Fest, but that sounds like exactly the type of venue where I would have a lot of fun. Um, oh, yeah. You know, I, I, I try to make it up to Tinley, at least for the October show every year, and it's, you know, it, it's like the the actual expo is half of it and just getting to catch up with everybody and, you know, sit around and tell stories and, you know, swap notes and drink beer. It's, it's always just a good time. So, uh, I, I could, my hat's off to you guys. I I hope it's awesome. And if I could make it down there, I'd love to, but, um, yeah. Yeah. That's like the best thing about carpet fest. It's like a show without a show. You know what I mean? It's like, you don't have to worry about (laughs) animals and stuff except, you know, checking out the collection. So, I haven't even vended Tinley yet, and I, I honestly don't really have a plan to any time in the near future because I think it would take away from it. You know, I'm I'm really glad that everybody else does, but 
I just love to be able to get up there and enjoy myself and not have to yeah. worry about all the everything else. But yeah. uh, let's see, cool. deja vu. So how how I got my start in in yeah. medicine or or with reptiles? Let's go with both because then we can. Let's go, go with both. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, we'll have to listen to my GTP keeper uh, interview later and, and compare notes and see if the stories still line up or if <laughs> if it's evolved and become like more of a tall tale. Uh, but <laughs> let's see, I, I, you know, I was always, I was, I was a dinosaur kid. I mean, my story's not that unique. Uh, you know, I, I was, I grew up like, you know, in the pre-Jurassic park world, just fascinated by all my books with the dinosaurs in them. And I grew up in like a boring suburb of Chicago, but just being able to just get outside and <laughs> look under, you know, the railroad tracks and underneath logs and rocks and stuff, and just find the occasional salamander or skink was always really exciting for me. Um, you know, so I grew up with the same passion and the same interest. Um, my parents still, still still tell stories about like finding dead lizards in the washing machine and stuff like that. Cause just whatever I could find and my, you know, I put in my pockets and take home with me and hide under the bed or whatever. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure it's a familiar story for most people. I did end up, uh, you know, I got to the point of course, you know, where as I started keeping animals and started, you know, putting them together, you know, sometimes you'd find eggs, sometimes you'd find babies. And as that, as that interest developed and became more serious in time, I, I did become frustrated, you know, as a, as a keeper, I took a lot of animals. I had some really bad veterinary experiences or, or what to me felt like horrible veterinary experiences at the time where I brought an animal in and, uh, you know, it did not have a favorable outcome or I felt like the quote unquote exotics vet who like clearly was a bird guy or clearly was a rabbit guy, you know, and didn't even know the species I had when I brought it in, you know, if it didn't work out well, it was, you know, I was sure the guy was an idiot. Um, you know, so I, I kind of hoped that, you know, as my interest in medicine grew and that as I eventually someday became a veterinarian, I would be able to give back and, you know, kind of a positive and a meaningful way and, um, you know, be able to apply what I noted. Basically what I'm saying is everything in my life has led up to this moment to be on this show with you guys tonight to talk about snakes. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Oh, oh, that's horrible. Um, we're making dreams come true here. I wonder what the heck. Yeah, look at that. <laughs> no. Oh, no, oh, aim higher, buddy. All right. So, um, all right. So, so, so you're saying is that that, that whole passion – is really what led you to become a reptile vet. It really was. And to be clear, I see primarily dogs and cats, you know, I'm a, I'm mm-hmm. a, I try not to, you know, pigeonhole myself. I'm a veterinarian. So if people bring me something, I try to apply what I know to see it. But that said, you know, I, I've always sort of lived by the philosophy that if you're going to do something, be awesome at it. I mean, that's the same approach you guys take to breeding, right? You know, if you try to try to focus, if you can try to be really great at what you do, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so to that end, you know, like I, I tell people I see, you know, pretty much any reptile or amphibian or invertebrate or fish or something really cool that comes in the door. Um, I'm really lucky to have some vets in the area that are just phenomenal with birds and phenomenal with small mammals. Um, you know, so I, I kind of punt a lot of that stuff to them because they're great at it, you know, so why, why stick around and not do a good job? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but, but I see primarily dogs and cats and I'm really, I'm really fortunate, really lucky to get to see so many cool herps. Um, we've got a lot of a lot of keepers and breeders in the area that I work with and uh and it, it, you know the word's starting to get around I do see I do see patients by mail too and that's kind of something we can talk about more um but yeah so I'm, I'm really lucky typically people that are going to take the time to really package an animal carefully and spend the money to ship them to me are typically the people that really want good veterinary care too and you're not 
your your hands are not tied by finances and and other things. Um, mm-hmm. So it's you know you you get kind of a a very committed cohort of people, and it's nice. Yeah, that is good. Yeah, very cool. So, um, how does your experiences as a vet kind of like have you seen any kind of a way it's been shaping your keeping? Like, did you go through vet school and realize that there are certain <laughs> things you're doing differently? <laughs> yeah, actually, probably uh, becoming a veterinarian shaped uh, being a, a keeper more than anything. Um, mm-hmm. It really, basically, like I find I just really don't have time anymore to be a very good keeper. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was I was listening to you guys talk about your really light breeding seasons, and I was like, Gee, I think I got three clutches this year, and it was like a big deal. Um, <laughs> it's just, I, I you know, and I got to be very honest with you. You know, I, I used to be so entrenched in the breeding world, and I, I, I like to still think that I'm there, and I, I have that background. But um, you know, I'm I'm very lucky. I think most. I think you guys have met Shalimar or know of Shalimar at this point. You know. She mm-hmm. has been, uh, I mean, she's amazing. Like, um, you know, if, if I didn't have her to help me with so much of what we do, I, I wouldn't be able to keep the collection that I have. I would be in way over my head just because, um, you know, it, you guys know it takes a lot of time to keep up with all of those animals. Um, oh, yeah. And especially, oh, yeah. to, you know, document what you're doing and, and really do a good job with it. So I'm very fortunate. Um, probably in a lot of ways, I, it's not that my interests have shifted. It's just that my responsibilities and, and time time have shifted so that I, you know, I end up doing a lot more of the, the clinical duties and a lot of the day-to-day and maintenance and observations and stuff. She gets the pleasure of dealing with now. Um, but, but I, I don't think that was really the heart of your question. You know, certainly, yeah, absolutely. I, I think about these animals a little bit more differently, uh, a little different. Mm-hmm. What am I trying to say? When, uh, you know, and when, and when somebody sends me an animal too, it's, it's a big deal. You know, if, if I have the honor of keeping somebody else's animal for two weeks in the hospital, you know, you better believe I'm, I'm all over that animal. I'm watching every little behavior. I'm trying to decide if, if the things I'm seeing are significant. And, um, you know, one thing I've really come to appreciate is there's, I mean, there's so much that we still don't understand, especially about behavior and about, you know, and the way we interpret behavior. Um, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. I, I think one of the things that's really changed for me, for example, is, you know, I, I, I used to, God, I, I like, I really wanted to be, just a power breeder. I wanted to be like on the map. I wanted to be one of these guys that just produced tons of cool stuff. And there's guys out there and, you know, some of them have their own TV shows now, you know, I mean, you know who I'm talking about. I always wanted to be, (laughs) I always wanted to be like that guy who like would go to the show and everybody would be like, Oh, there's that guy with all that cool stuff, you know? And, uh, um, and there's certainly a place for that, but I think I've, I've really come to appreciate too, that, you know, when you really get to know a species, as intimately as like you guys know carpets as intimately as I've, I've started to know green tree pythons and I, they're, God, there's still so much to learn and emerald tree boas and boygo, which we'll talk about, I hope. Um, I, it makes me just more excited to be able to keep them and to keep them in bigger, more naturalistic enclosures to get to observe more naturalistic behavior and try to, you know, replicate a more natural environment. That that's probably what excites me more now. And I think my responsibilities of a veterinary as a veterinarian have certainly played into that. Very cool. Right. What about, I have a question, like, what about if you get a species that you're unfamiliar with sent to you, uh, like, what's your process as far as trying to diagnose that species? Like, do you have, I mean, is that, like, major research, I would imagine, you have to undertake about oh, that yeah. species? Oh, yeah, actually, or, and that's part yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. And, and actually, one of the things that makes my job so fun is because I get to work sometimes with keepers that absolutely know more about the species than I do. You know, I'm, I might be able to infer more about the physiology, never even having seen the animal before. I may have a better understanding of, you know, some aspects of the way they tick. And, and you know, I could read their blood work. But a, a lot of times they know a lot more about the natural history of that animal than I do. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, so I think that's part of part of being a good uh, not just a reptile veterinarian, but any veterinarian is being willing to, you know, kind of humble yourself and sit back and say, you know, hey, I know a lot of cool stuff, but, you know, this person gets to see this animal day in, day out. They know it's normal. You know, it's like when, when somebody comes in and with a dog even and they say, um, you know, I'm really worried about this. This is not like her. And I look and I'm like, yeah, it's an ear infection. And they're like, no, she's had ear infections before. Like, this is different. You know, that's when you kind of have to sit back mm-hmm. and say, like, okay, what am I missing? You know, you got to look very carefully. Mm-hmm. You got to kind of step back. And so you have to do the same thing, too, with unfamiliar species. But, yeah, I get jazzed, too. You know, I get really excited sometimes if I get something really unusual. Um, you know, and you, you go home, you hit the books, and you start reading everything there is to know about it. Um, but it, it's amazing, too, just what you can learn from the keepers because, you know, if they're, if they're worth their salt, they know what they're doing. Right. Yeah, I would Very imagine cool. that that's, like, uh, one of the cool things of the job because I know for myself, like, sometimes the, the coolest part of, like, uh, you know, looking at a new species is the the, the research yeah. of it trying to figure out like what it's Absolutely. all about and everything you know <laughs> you know yeah uh, that's awesome cool yeah and sometimes too you know there there are species that you like you think you understand um, like Shell a few years ago really developed this interest in uromastics and I was like I know uromastics you know really hot really dry uh, you know lots of grains and then yeah there's like there's a gigantic complex of, of uromastic species that we're still starting to understand. And some are actually semi-arboreal. Some eat a lot more, you know, of the flower part of the plant as opposed to the green part of the plant. Some, you know, are highly insectivorous and some like do not give them insects. Uh, you know, some like it really hot and some like it really, really, really hot. <laughs> you know, there is, <laughs> right. there's a lot of variation there. So, you know, sometimes even just thinking, you know, a species or thinking you have a jumping off point, you know, thinking, I know green tree pythons, so I can do emerald tree boas. It's not always true, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So there's there's definitely a, a huge degree of kind of stepping back, humbling yourself, and learning, for sure. Awesome. Well, cool. we were asked, we were talking about wondering what is the what is the one problem that you see more than any other with dealing with reptiles? What's the main issue that people have <laughs> You know, I guess it kind of depends on what type of reptile. You know, you hit the nail on the head with green tree python. Certainly respiratory disease is so common. And we talked a little bit about that in the last show. But, you know, um, I see all sorts of things. And honestly, it depends on who I'm, the type of client that I'm getting into. You know, I often do see people still, it's crazy to say, 2016. I mean, we have Google at our fingertips. But you get people Mm -hmm. that, that literally buy everything on you know, the handout from PetSmart that says, this is what the species needs. And, <laughs> right. I, I, and, you know, that breaks my heart more than anything because they come in and they've spent the money. They've spent tons of money. I mean, you know how expensive PetSmart is compared to Home Depot where we get most of our substrates and water bowls. Right. And, I mean, you know, the, I mean, it's crazy. It, yeah. And my heart breaks when these people come in and it's like, uh, they're looking at the exam fee, they're looking at radiographs, they're looking at blood work, and they're like, you know, we quickly get to $200 and they're like, I I can't afford that. And you're looking at this like 
20-gallon glass aquarium with this hood and this reflector and a, and a hot lamp and a cold lamp and repped a carpet and stick on, you know, thermometers. And, I mean, you're looking at all this stuff and you're like, I know you spent way more than that. You know, I know this stuff wasn't cheap. Clearly, you cared enough that you, you were trying to do it right. You just you took a wrong turn. You know, you didn't you didn't Google. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's funny. Right. If, they're, if they're a dog and a cat, cl- a dog or cat client, I'm saying, Damn it, you Googled. <laughs> but but if, yeah. it's, if it's a reptile client, I'm like, I wish you would have just Googled. At least we could have, you know, kind of jumped off from the same point. But um, right. But but to your point, yeah. I mean, it, it it depends on it depends on what I'm seeing. If it's somebody who really knows what they're doing, often it's really weird stuff. I had a guy recently that brought me what was supposed to be a prolapse, and it wasn't a prolapse. It was cloacitis, inflammation of the cloaca. I mean, this was this was a full-blown cloaca that just wanted to pop out, but it hadn't gotten there yet. Um, well, it's not a presentation you see every day, but, but uh, I mean, I was glad that he was on top of his stuff, and he was like, don't know what this is. I guess it's probably a prolapse. I'm not really sure. Uh, definitely abnormal. Wanted you to look at it. I'm like, God bless you. <laughs> I'm glad you brought it to me right. now and not when it's like hanging out in black. Not, you know, not whatever you do with it. Right. right. Well, so, yeah. Yeah, but it depends on the species. It depends on the type of client. I can't say there's any, like, number one cause. I know you guys mentioned sort of before the show that you'd think mites would be really common. Um, it's funny. Mites mites kind of fall into the category, one of those categories of diseases that I think people do a lot more self-help. They try to figure mm-hmm. it out by reading or, you know, talking to friends who've dealt with it before. Um and often I don't see a lot of that. I'd like to think it's because we're getting better. I'd like to think because we're importing fewer animals or we're importing at least fewer of the common species that we you know, typically associate with mites. And I'm sure that's probably right. part of it. Um, I, I, some of it, too, may, may be, though, that people have you know, found strategies that work for them. It may be, too, that um, I, I'm seeing them for different things, like they're coming in with toxicity because they use the wrong stuff or because an animal is mm-hmm. already so debilitated mites are on the list but it's not really the reason it's there it's there because it's ghost white and it can't move um you know so it again it's just one of those big it depends right gotcha. well, <clears throat> we're <laughs> speaking well speaking of mites so we're going to talk a little bit about mites and um i think that it's i don't know how I, I, my feeling is like one of those topics that nobody wants to talk about. I mean, mm-hmm. I think if you're a keeper, at some point you have dealt with mites. Even if mm-hmm. even if you don't have it in your collection, I'm sure that you've had an animal come from somebody at some point that you know that's that's had mites. So sure. I'm surprised that it's not talked about more freely. I guess. I mean, it's like as soon as you say, yeah. "Oh, I have mites." They're, you're like a bad person or you get a bad mark. Or, you know? <laughs> right. Nobody, nobody like wants to weird, talk to you anymore. Like having a, yeah. Exactly. It's like having a weird fetish or something. But, you know, it's like, uh, that, that guy. Like, you that you guy. Know, it's yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Don't talk about yeah. Um. So maybe you could talk a bit, a little bit about, like, where did they originate from? And then maybe let's talk a little about uh, about their life cycle and stuff and, and how what what's actually going on. So maybe yeah. we can have a better understanding of treatment. Sure. Well, I could. Yeah, would love to talk about mites. They're they're kind of nasty. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons people don't talk about them. Um, I don't think anybody. I certainly don't. I couldn't tell you where they come from, and I don't think that anybody really knows. That there have been a lot of theories, and I could talk to you about that because they're really interesting. But I don't think we know definitively. Um, one theory is that we know they're pretty closely related to a lot of other mites. 
which isn't a huge surprise. They look exactly I mean, under a microscope, unless you're a parasitologist, you wouldn't be able to tell them apart um, next to a lot of other mites. I mean, mites are mites. We think that they probably evolved from mammalian mites of some sort. And okay. the most interesting theory that I've heard about, you know, like, okay, well, how do we go from mammals to like these mites suddenly thought, hey, it's cool, you know, it's really warm-blooded, delicious, like highly nutritious meal here. I think I'll jump on this cold snake. Like, that's that's kind of a, a, a brainstorm to me. Um, mm-hmm. uh-huh. I, I, one theory I've heard is that they probably were rodent mites. And there there are a group of rodent mites that morphologically look very similar. And it sort of stands to reason, mm-hmm. like, if you're a mite and you live on a rodent and you're going to eaten, you know, if you have an opportunity to jump to a snake. Now, I don't think there was that forethought involved, but, you know, it probably opportunistically crawled onto a snake, found that it was, you know, suitable, and you had a population of mites that did well and succeeded in those types of environments and started breeding. You know, that's that's at least been one proposed theory for how they jumped from from rodents to, to reptiles. So... As for geographically, where they come from, people have suggested either Asia or Africa, which would make sense because we do think that they probably really originated or really took off with the pet trade. And a lot of mm-hmm. you know, our popular species came from Asia, Africa, or South America. So, um, And we also know that they really thrive in tropical environments. Um, you know, So it, it sort of makes sense. But I think the short answer to your question is nobody actually knows where they, where they originally came from. Okay. All right. So, what about the uh, the life cycle? How does how does that work? You know, yeah, the life cycle life cycle is. I you know I, I think it was Owen that mentioned uh, in the beginning. He said you know know your enemy, and I, <laughs> I think these are actually really great great questions because um, it's true. I think often this part really does get lost in the whole conversation. You know, we talk all about like, well, how do you kill them? But if you understand how they work, they're they're actually really interesting. So there's five stages, and this gets really boring, and I, I won't talk a lot about that, but there are five stages. They start as eggs, eggs that are kind of stuck typically to the side of an enclosure. And, and by the way, as we talk about this, I'll refer to most of the life cycle as if it's taking place inside of a terrarium because that's mm-hmm. really okay. where we know about it. Um, there's very, very little known about the life history outside of a terrarium because everything that we studied okay. has been in a terrarium. We don't, again, we don't really know where these came from. Um, a kind of a big unknown, I think. Um, I, and by the way, I should also back up and say that, you know, you mentioned DPI's website, which Dave Barker does a fantastic job kind of summarizing some work and, and gives great credit, I think, to, to Joseph Kamen, who was the guy in the 50s, late 40s and 50s, who really worked all of this stuff out. Um, there have been a few papers since then. There have been a few, like, little life history observations and a few great summaries and people, you know, kind of expanding upon um, you know, this work with their own observations and stuff like that, some of the, the veterinary literature. But almost everything that we know about this stuff comes from this one guy who was working basically in isolation. Um, he was at the Ohio State University and uh, was actually doing a lot of this work. His interest was because this is a major problem in zoos worldwide. Like every, everything that we know came down to guys just like us who were, you know, doing this at a, you know, in a professional level were, you know, working in these zoos and institutions. A lot of the species they were working with were coming straight in out of the trade, um, Mm -hmm. out of the wild. And then they were dealing with this as a major problem. And so somebody actually sat down and started as his PhD work. He published a few papers and then finally just published like this massive dissertation and studied these for years straight, published this in 1953. And, uh, and, and so pretty much everything we know 
it all comes out of this. So, you know, a big razor glass hat tip to Joseph came in because everything we know about the snake might basically comes from him. Um, which is to say that basically I'm summarizing <laughs> from memory a lot of what, you know, I've read uh, over the years. Right. So if I get some of this wrong, um, you mm-hmm. know, don't, don't shoot the messenger. But, but yeah, uh, some of this stuff is boring, but I think it's important. So the, the snake mite starts as an egg. These are typically plastered uh, in groups of like 20 to 40, um, you know, kind of to the side or up underneath a, a log hide or up underneath the rim of a water bowl, just somewhere in the terrarium. Um, these eggs hatch into this little larval stage. The larval yeah. stage is non-feeding. Um, you can actually see the eggs and the larva with the naked eye, but people usually don't because they're sort of tucked away. They like warmth. They like humidity. They like darkness. Um, a few days later, they will go through a molt. They molt just like reptiles do, and they call it ecdysis, just like in reptiles. Um, when it emerges, it comes out as what they call a protonymph. And this is one of the two stages in the five-stage life cycle where these things feed. Protonymphs are ravenous. Protonymphs are fast. If you've ever, like, picked up a snake that was infested and you've looked on your hands and you see them, like, you know, twirling this way and that, running all over your arms, those are, those are protonymphs. Um, oh, the protonymphs okay. are, yeah, and they're nasty <laughs> and they bite. They're nasty and they bite. One of the first things they do is they, they try to lodge underneath the scale. They, they, common misconception, they don't bite through scales. They lodge between scales and then they bite the soft skin. Once they're in, okay. they'll feed there. Um, I'm, again, this is from memory, but I want to say it, it takes anywhere from like three to seven days for a proton to feed. Once it's fully engorged, it will drop off. It will go find a nice place to rest and digest its meal. It will go through one molt uh, into what's called a deuteronymph. Deuteronymphs aren't cool. They don't do anything. Uh, they just mm. molt again, and then they become adults. Deuteronymphs don't feed. They don't. I mean, they literally just sit there and molt, and they're like, hey, I'm a deuteronymph, and then they're adults. Once they're okay. adults, they go back to being nasty, ravenous feeders. And from the adult stage, I think they can live, I want to say, like 30 to 40 days. So it's about two really? months in, in my mind. I think of it as about two months, yeah. And it's not a long period of time, and they're not like they're not like fleas where they go and they lay, you know, 50 eggs a day. They lay like a clutch of, I, I want to again, I want to say like 20 to 30 eggs, and that's it, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and they'll continue to feed, and then eventually they die. Um, one kind of interesting thing about their breeding is that when the females lay eggs, if she's lucky enough to have males nearby, they will be fertilized, and they become females. There's if there aren't males nearby, they lay unfertilized eggs, which become males. Kind of interesting, huh? Huh. Yeah. Just like wow. if they don't have males around, well, I guess they can't get fertilized. You'd think like we got to make some males. <laughs> <laughs> got to make some males. That's, yeah. Right. So, yeah. so if they're on, they go they go through like this. You know, we, there's a lot of talk about parthenogenesis now in boas and other snake species, but you know these were one of those early critters that we started to learn about parthenogenesis from. Yeah, they lay unfertilized eggs that become males. So, um. Yeah, really interesting things uh, about these uh, about these critters. But yeah, you know, some take home points. They they only feed at you know two of those stages. So if you think about like, okay, well, I want to try to treat the snake so that I can kill these these mites at like a certain point in the life cycle. Well, those are two areas to target. You know, the protonymph stage, the adult stage. Uh, if you're thinking more environmental control, you can think, well, I'm probably going to be killing mostly eggs larva and mm-hmm. some So, you know, again, we kind of we kind of start to tiptoe into the world where if you know your enemy, it opens up doors to understanding how to break through. 
Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So what is the, what what makes it such uh, such a problem for snakes? Like, what is the actual? I mean, obviously, get bit all day long is you know <laughs> not as annoying a thing. But yeah, that I, one, I would enjoy that. that one, is it? Uh, I I would imagine that if one snake is sick, they can transfer illnesses and you know stuff like that. Yeah. Um, is that see yeah. what the issues are? That's that's basically at the heart of it. I mean, you hit on one thing. Stress is huge. I mean, if you're sitting there, you know, trapped in a cage and you're just getting literally eaten alive and you're itching like crazy, it's very irritating. And we talked, uh, you know, on the Green Tree Python Keeper radio about how I really think that stress is one of the huge underlying features of disease in captive reptiles. You know, certainly you can have right. primary causes of disease. You can have some nasty viruses and things. But, you know, for snakes that are otherwise doing well in captivity, eating, feeding, thriving, breeding, you know, uh, something that's dialed in nicely, suddenly introduced mites to the environment. You've got an animal that's very stressed. And once you have stress, then comes the cascade of other events where, where they get sick. So yeah, stress is a huge part of it. Um, anemia is huge, you know, in a wild environment. And again, we're sort of inferring cause we don't know much about the, you know, the wild life cycle of mites, but, and in, in, you have to figure that in the environment, snakes are moving around. They're picking a few mites up here and there when they drop off because they're done feeding and they have to go become boring deuter nymphs. They're, they're leaving the snake for a while, you know. So snakes have an opportunity to kind of get away from these things. And we have to presume that in the wild, they're probably not as abundant. I mean, they're not infestive like they are in a cage. In a cage, a snake is a sitting duck for this type of a thing. You know, it's sitting there. It can't escape. It can't move on to the next place. And these mites are just increasing exponentially you know the burden is just increasing exponentially they're getting bitten they're getting stressed and and the mites are literally draining them of blood so yeah you can see anemias you can see weakness you can see deficiencies in certain minerals you can see um yeah you can see animals that just come in so sick and debilitated when you see the mites you don't even know is this from the mites or are the mites just a secondary feature of this animal coming in sick and imported you know mm-hmm. it, it can be really difficult to tell um, the same guy who wrote the whole life history of the snake mite, Joseph Kamen, in 1948 published a paper that I actually admittedly not read. It's been kind of like in the back of my mind is like one of those things I have to get to. But he described, uh, you know, some horrible debilitating illness that he believed to be attributable to um, the snake mites. In other words, you know, in the same way that fleas and ticks transmit a lot of different diseases that we know about to dogs and cats, suggested that, you know, why wouldn't mites also be a perfect vector for transmitting um, mm-hmm. bloodborne pathogens or viruses to snakes? And that has been kind of one of those unproven but widely talked about things in the veterinary literature since then, you know. I've talked even a little right. bit about IBD, like, because is that a virus? Is that an arena virus that's potentially transmitted by mites? And I think the jury's still kind of out, but it but it would make sense. Sure. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> um what about uh, okay? So let's talk a little bit about. I mean, to me, the the most like we said earlier, the most important part of this whole thing is prevention. Um, yeah. So huge. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it comes down to a lot. You know, people talk about quarantine. You know, something I think is really important. Um, and, and I think mites are one of the most important things to quarantine for. Uh, to your point. It's one of those funny taboo topics in in reptile keeping that people don't like to talk about. I had a green tree python a a little while back, actually, that came from a really reputable guy. And I was really surprised when, while I was working it up, 
I actually found some mites on it. It was like just one or two. And that was like nowhere ever mentioned in the history. And he, <laughs> I talked to the guy and he was like really, you know, caught off guard. Like, yeah, okay, hang on it. Let me backtrack a little bit. So I actually got him from my guy. You know, there was like this long, like, really wasn't my fault. I didn't do it. You know, it was like <laughs> I caught him red-handed yeah. doing something, you know, naughty or something. He was really, <laughs> he was really like embarrassed. And it was just one of those things where it was like, no, I mean, this is helpful information. This is something that I need to, to know about. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I forgot what you asked me. <laughs> um, I, know, I was just saying, like, like, what are some of the preventatives that you would recommend? As that you far would recommend, as, you know, yeah. Well, yeah, I, right. So that's, that's quarantine where is one. lost my train of thought. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so exactly. But it was one of those things where it was like, you know, he was caught off guard, but obviously this was something that was shipped to him, apparently. You know, and it was mm-hmm. it was one of those things where it was coming from somebody so reputable, and I was surprised because this was coming from somebody so reputable. It was just one of those things that kind of slipped through the cracks. I think we have a tendency, especially like in these really small niche communities, like the locality milk snake guys, or the green tree python people guys, or I'm sure you know the the carpet community. It's like you kind of know there's sort of this who's who. Like, oh no, 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 it's coming from him. It's <laughs> trust me, like it's legit. It's cool, you know. And it's not a knock against any of those people, but you know, somewhere along the way, something can slip in. Might not, you know, yeah. it might not be anybody's fault. It could be something we picked up at a show or something like that. You know, it could be something that, you know, somebody recycled a shipping box because they were in a pinch and they promised somebody to ship the snake out by a deadline. You know, things, things can happen. And I think uh, it's always a good idea to quarantine because, you know, again, it can take, what, up to 40 days potentially for, uh, you know, if it starts as one or two mites, you know, what are the odds that you're going to see one or two mites on a big black snake? You yeah. Know? I'd say give it a month or two and, and, you know, see if it's really going to blow up. I I like to, when I quarantine, I like to keep new animals. If, if the species is, you know, amenable to it, I like to try to keep things on paper towels, things with white backgrounds, things with disposable hides or disposable perches. So you can really kind of keep a close eye on things. If you have the luxury Mm -hmm. of having, you know, some black cages, some white cages, I think quarantining in white cages is great because again, you can see those things a little bit more obviously. If you've never seen snake mites, by the way, they're, uh, the larval stage, they can be almost see-through. They're really difficult to see. But as adults, they're they're about the size of a pinhead, and they're black. They, they show up pretty easily. So if you've got them on a white background, um, they they kind of pop out if you know what to look for. Right. But yeah, you know, quarantine prevention. Obviously, uh, you know, I, I my background was in public health even before vet school. I, I think an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure for sure. You know, if you can if you can just prevent yourself from ever, ever even having to deal with them, you're so much better off. And, and that happens the moment you take a new snake into the collection. Yeah, I, would, uh, I think that's another thing. I don't know. It seems I could be wrong, but it seems like that's something that people, I've even been guilty of this myself at sometimes, uh, just to speak to your point. It's like I'm getting something from somebody that I've got a million times. Yep. And, I interacted with this person, you know what I mean? And then all of a sudden it's yep. like, uh, I just put him in Done. my collection because this yeah, is um, you you know, so-and-so, you know what I mean? Yeah, There's absolutely. no way that I'm going to get screwed on this because, yeah, you know. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and you know what, probably nine times out of ten you wouldn't, uh, yeah, you know, but right. the one time that I see somebody that comes into the hospital for that and they go through the history, how did it happen? It's not because they, well – it's usually if it's if it's a serious keeper, it's usually not because they didn't know any better. It's because like, I, no way this is going to happen to me, you know. So it's one of those yeah. things. I think you kind of have to use your best judgment, and you know, we certainly all take risks. I've done it before, you know. It's like totally. I mean, you know, you're getting 
you're getting this male just in time. Oh my God, the female's ovulating. I can't, I can't wait another two weeks. It's fine. It's yeah. It'll be, it'll be cool. You know, right. I, I've done it. I've done it, but yeah. you know, <laughs> so you can yeah. get trapped. I mean, it's a glance over kind of thing. I mean, like you can decide that you really want to buy this boy and you buy it and you're buying it from somebody you've done dealings with, but you don't really realize is that maybe two days ago, that same animal was on display at a reptile show and now you bought it. Now it's being boxed up and shipped right. off to you and nobody ever really took a second to look and see, Hey, it, it, there could be something on it. And now it right. might blow up at your place. So yeah. Or somebody else who was really serious was interested in it. Didn't tell yeah. you that they had just been down, you know, two rows over at another table holding something else when they were seriously exactly. considering buying it. They took it out. They held it. You know, I remember there. Were, I've dealt with mites twice in my reptile keeping, you know, years. Uh, mm-hmm. And once was in, when I was in grad school. And to this day, I couldn't tell you where the mites came from. The only thing that I could say, and of course, you know, I was active in shows and stuff like that. So things were coming and going, but I, I wasn't doing a lot of buying and selling at that point, at least not at that time. Um, but I had done, I was, you know, very active in my, my local reptile, uh, my local herb society. And we had done a behind the scenes tour at one of the local zoos. It was a very mm-hmm. legit zoo, but it, you know, I mean, they deal with stuff that comes in and out and it's just kind of the nature of the beast. And shortly after that, I had a small outbreak of mites and, uh, you know, the only thing I could pin it on, I was like, Sir, did I really, I brought like, I brought like zoo mites home. Like I wasn't sure if I should be like honored or like, or, or just depressed <laughs> or confused. I was just kind of like, like I got like zoo mites. Like how does that even happen? It's like, yeah. <laughs> The same little bugs wow. that are draining mice snakes drains those important ones at the zoo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. The ones that I can't afford, you know. Like having right. special mites. I wasn't sure if I should Bowling try to breed them. Or... That thing. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so Jeez. okay, so let's say that you uh, you did what we just said, and you uh, didn't quarantine, or however, all of a sudden you recognize you have mites. What's yeah? You know. What's what's the recommendations as far as getting rid of these guys? Well, let, let's back up a second and touch on on some mm-hmm. details of quarantine because I just said you know watch out for them, okay? You know, but I, I start to see them, you know, or what yep. do I do, or you know what happens during this time when maybe they're there but you haven't seen them yet? I'll tell you one one right. really cool gem, one really cool pearl that I gleaned. By the way, I'll, if you have a chance to buy Joseph Kamen's original work. Um, I don't know if either one of you guys are reptile literature nerds like I am, but I, like I really like some of the really old, cool literature. You know, being able to <laughs> yeah. like dig into like the old, you know, the the original writings. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's there's some awesome old papers on you know still archived on the MBF uh, that have been added over the years. Some of Trooper Walsh's like original work, you know, and and that's not even like old, you know, compared to you know some of the stuff that's out there. I mean, Cayman's work is from the nineteen early nineteen fifties and uh, late nineteen forties, and there's stuff even from before that. It's funny, all the stuff he cites is from, like, the 1800s. I was like, who is working on snake mites in the 1800s? But it, but it's you know? Um, but if you have a chance to pick up this this book, uh, my my mom and I shared an Amazon account when I was in college because she could get free shipping with my student whatever, you know? Yeah, and she right. saw that I'd put his work on my wish list, which I think this is so cool of my mom, especially for somebody, like, who doesn't understand technology. She was like, what do I get right. for Christmas? And she, she saw... <laughs> On my wish list, I had Joseph Kamen's thing. So I was, like, so shocked and impressed and delighted when I opened this Christmas gift one year, and it was, like, like the life history of 
Ophianesis natricis, the snake. My, I was like, seriously, it was so. But, but anyway, if you have a chance to get it, it's really cool. It's really, really cool. And and reading the original literature is so much more useful, I think, because you know when you read everybody's kind of still down version of it. And with all due respect to the guys who've done it, you know, hats off to Dave Barker. He made that so accessible for most people. It's not you know easy work to get your hands on. But when you read the the condensed version and you read kind of his interpretation or anybody's interpretation, you get kind of the, you know, the their their interpretation of it and their ideas from it. Um, one of the things that I really gleaned from it was, you know, it was if you read the materials and methods paper, you know, the section of like the primary literature that nobody ever takes the time to read because it's boring. You know, right. I took six right. test tubes and then I took two snakes and I, you know, it's yeah. like it's the boring stuff. But it was really interesting. I was kind of fascinated as I read it because I was like, how how do you study snake mites? Like, how, you know, it's not like you have like six turtles and you move two into a different tank. It's like you have a hundred snake mites of very, you know, different life stages. Like, how do you keep up with all this stuff? And and the way he did it, I think, actually has really practical implications for reptile keepers. So it's really clever. Like, basically, what he did was starting with a group of adults. Um, he kept them basically quarantined to like the adult section by keeping them in moats. This is hilarious. If you think about it, this is like, he basically, he, he reasoned, okay, this is a really slow moving organism. It's not like a flea. It can't jump out of the cage. It's not like right. a, a horse fly. It can't fly. All it can do is crawl. And it's an exceptionally poor swimmer. This is why snakes soak themselves by the way, because it, it helps. Right. And he drown. said, well, I can take every cage and just get a slightly larger cage and put some water between them, and now they literally can't go anywhere unless I carry them out. Isn't that cool? Huh. Like, wow. you could literally take, <laughs> yeah, if you've, if you've got a cage, yeah. and you can put it in a moat of water, I mean, just take a flat Rubbermaid and have an inch of water in it, and as long as you're careful not to carry something in and out, you, they literally cannot escape that enclosure. To me, that is so, wow. that is so easy and so brilliant. You know, you, I mean, so if you, we ever want to study the snake mites that are growing in our collection, we can do this. Yeah, if you want to try to weed out the albinos so that you can sell them for more Oh, money. my God. Uh, oh, a stinker <laughs> project with mites. Oh, my God. Why didn't I think about this before? Lining up yeah, but I see what you're saying. Like, so mites. if you if you see what you're saying is that if you if you take that information and you were to see that, say, in a in a stack of cages, you see that, and somehow you can make a moat, you might be able to... Uh, you know, maybe oh, keep some spread. from go, from spreading yeah. to your other stuff. Yeah. And then on the flip Jeez. side of that, if you can't necessarily quarantine like outside of your room, like if you don't have a quarantine room and you set up a quarantine mm-hmm. cage, you could put yeah. that cage in that moat and if it has mites, it's not going to travel outside of that. Exactly. That exactly. Huh. <laughs> it it really is. Awesome. I mean, and, and again, yeah, and, and this is one of those things where it was like, you know, that's not what people typically talk about. You know, most of the recommendations in there are about, um, you know, understanding the life history and stuff like that. But I'm reading this and I'm like, hang on, hang on. You basically just told me <laughs> this is how you control mites from getting from one place to the other. I, I need this part right here. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't take credit for the idea. It, it was just cool, you know, that it was, I mean, it was right there spelled out for us. Um, but it's huh. not the part that most people talk about. So, yeah, I think, you know, quarantine goes without saying. How do you quarantine more effectively? I think doing that uh, is one way to do it. Some people have advocated putting, you know, if you do make a moat, put uh, 
little drop of like soap in it to lower surface tension to make them sink even faster. But yeah, mites are very, very poor swimmers. And this is why, this is why snakes seem to like to soak themselves. I think it actually is pretty effective. It's probably one of the reasons also that mites manage to find their ways to the snake's head because it's the one part they don't typically submerge for very long. Right. Right. So, so yeah, quarantine. And if something's going to get past that, it's going to be because you carried it out of the cage. So I think it goes without saying that, you know, if you do have to work in the quarantine cage, work the other snakes up first and then do that one last and then go wash your clothes, you know, um, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. Trying to think, I keep thinking of all sorts of other little things that we could touch on, but I don't want to, you know, I, I know that you guys had questions and things like that. Well, we'll, I'm sure you'll touch on some of that. If not, then I'll just blurt it all out at the end. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, if, yeah, you got it. Go for it. <laughs> if you, if you uh, think it's important, uh, go for it. Or yeah. Well, I, I don't know if this would fall. I know we're going to probably talk a little bit about treatments and stuff like that. This, I mean, yeah. might overlap a little bit with quarantine. But while we're talking a little bit about life cycle and life stage and stuff like that, uh, maybe some important points I didn't touch on. You know, these things really need – a, a very specific set of temperature and humidity parameters. Okay, these things really, okay. they need humidity. They desiccate very easily. And this is one of the reasons why some have proposed that, you know, if they did come from the wild and wild snakes, they probably came from someplace in the tropics. They really thrive uh, in, in warm, moist environments. Um, interestingly, they like it up to about 95, came and showed this in his paper. They like it up to about 95% relative humidity. Anything above mm-hmm. that, they actually avoid. So they avoid dry environments and they avoid anything above 95%. Why do you think they avoid things above 95%? Because they can't swim. They're not good swimmers. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You start to get water yeah. accumulation. You start to get condensation and they start to drown. So they really seem to like, you know, up to 95%, nothing beyond that. And they don't like dry environments. They start to desiccate really, really rapidly. Um, and so this is something else I've kind of proposed. Now, again, this we can talk about this a little bit more when we get to treatments, but you know, one of the things I always tell clients if they do contact me, consulting with me about um, uh, about snake mites and, and managing them is that uh, it, a, a little bit of your treatment, a little bit of your approach is going to uh, depend on your, your animal, not just the species and their, their own parameters, but kind of how healthy it is. You know, if this is one of these wild-caught snakes that's really stressed, the last thing I want to do is be putting it in, like, horrible suboptimal you know, dry husbandry conditions if it's a, a snake species that really needs humidity um, and I'm not going to start bombing it with really heavy hitting. But uh, if you have a snake that, you have a gopher snake that comes in and it's it's covered in mites, like, dude, dry that thing out. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. right. Because you're, you're going to, the snake will be fine for a few days, but you're going to kill every, I mean, you're going to dry out every egg, every mite egg in that cage. Um, and so, you know, that is certainly one thing to keep in mind. Um, I, I, I kind of consider this even sort of like a, a non-pharmacologic approach to treatment. Sure. Is uh, there sort of like an alternative a approach? Is there a humidity percentage that you would shoot for? Like there, there is. I would be... probably say, like probably below sixty, below fifty percent. And I'm sure that no, okay. I'm sure the real number has been published somewhere. But um, right, since I don't have it in front of me, I'm just going to say that and pretend like I'm right. I think it's probably about fifty or sixty percent <laughs> is what I would shoot for. <laughs> Um, okay. And and same with temperatures. I do remember one magic number, 104 degrees Fahrenheit is where they really, like, get uncomfortable. And, they like, the eggs start to dry out really quickly. They really start to die really quickly. Um, I think 120, 130 degrees is where you really start to cook them on contact. 
So this is wow. admittedly something I've never actually tried. But, like, I suppose if you had a cage and you took the snake out of it and you tossed your very wisely selected disposable toilet paper roll uh, hide box, you know, and mm-hmm. your um, Gladware water bowl, and you were just trying to sanitize the cage, you know, sir, you could bleach the hell out of it. Or if you were trying to be a little greener, if you will, you could go in, you could go in with a hairdryer, right? I mean, you could, you yeah. could literally take every corner with a hairdryer, you know, I, I imagine that's got to get 120, 130 degrees at least, right? Um, yeah. I don't yeah. have a hairdryer. I'm sure Shell could answer that question. Well, yeah. Um, well, there's <laughs> the, the one thing I've heard is uh, if it's in the summer months is, taking the cage and putting in a black trash bag and then sticking it like in the sun. Yeah. For the same reason. Like, exactly. It just, it just cooks and that yeah. really kills everything in there. So yep, I'm just curious. Yeah. You got, you got me, you got me thinking real quick. Is that why you don't see snake mites on lizards? Because typically they're basking at those types of temperatures. Oh, absolutely. That's one, that's one of the reasons. So, um, okay. Oh, I, Certainly, desert reptiles are not going to be conducive to mite growth. So, mm-hmm. at least not okay. the types of mites we're talking about. And it's worth mentioning that they're, you know, we kind of talk about snake mites as if they're all this one mite. There are some other right. mites. There are chiggers that you'll sometimes see, especially in like North American snakes uh, and lizards. There are other arachnids, ticks, and things that you'll see, uh, especially in wild caught species. But for for our purposes, you know, we're talking about the little black mite that we all, you know, are familiar with. Right. Um, another reason right. you sometimes won't see them on, like, you know, I mean, geckos live in the perfect environment, for example. There's kind of this, like, not widely talked about fact about them. They, they, there's something about their shape. They really kind of need a scale to hide under. Um, part of it is because they don't attach well, so they kind of rely on the scale for protection. Um, mm-hmm. Gotcha. If you've got silky skin like a gecko, they just don't, they don't thrive well on those animals. And so... Um, even even lizards that meet the right temperature and humidity requirements, um, if they don't have just the right type of scales, they don't do very well. I guess that's why blue tongue skinks they pretty much go just to their ears. Yeah, they can't exactly. get out of the skin. Yeah, huh. yep. they got to hide someplace. Yep, gross. And a lot of exposed <laughs> skin, which they like. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so is a way to uh to that's that's a pretty good uh tip, you know. Uh I never thought about the air dryer thing. What what uh, about yeah. the other direction? Like do we know if there's a temperature like if I stick like say I have a tiny cage or like a sure. little pub or could I take all my water bowls and stick them in my deep freezer for the night? I mean, yeah. I think the deep freezer would kill them. I'd feel pretty confident about that. And I know those numbers are published, though I can't remember them off the top of my head. The reason if okay. I have a choice, the reason I would probably choose heat over cold is because for the same reason that, like, when you're shipping a snake, it's much worse for the snake to get suddenly too hot for a few hours than it is for it to get a little too cool. You know, the, right. the mites mm-hmm. will cool down. Um, you know, the, their metabolism will will shut down and they can, if anything, you can really slow down uh, the life cycle as opposed to actually killing them. Of course, right. if you're freezing them, you get to extreme temperatures, you're, you're going to kill them just as, mm-hmm. just as handily. But, but um, I, I think drying them out, hitting them with hot, dry heat is, is probably faster and more effective. Right. Better, better to cook them than to potentially not kill everybody with freezing them. I got you. Right. Exactly. Potentially get them to, you know, where they just are much slower to come out of hibernation after you've introduced them to your collection. 
Oh yeah, you, then that's how it usually goes by. With like, oh, we've had a couple weeks where we're safe, and boom, you're yep. back to. Oh, well, that would be terrible. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm always that on my worst enemy. Yeah, no, Jesus. it's it's frustrating. Okay, okay. what about? Um... Um, go ahead, Eric. Go ahead, Owen. No, no, no. Go ahead. Oh, I was just, I was just saying, what about like uh, chemical? Preventatives. I mean, we're kind of getting into that a little bit. Yeah. Um, I, I think everybody's got a mom and a pop uh, remedy. What about like, you know, what what have you heard and what would you suggest and what do you feel is dangerous? Yeah, this is this is one of those areas where I can probably talk generally about you know some of the different things that are out there and some of the pros and cons, but. Um, where, where unfortunately, I just don't think there's like a one size fits all, which you know seems to be perfectly safe for some species or really toxic to others. And and um, and to be quite honest with you, there's a lot of things that seem to work awesome, like most of the time, and they're like the go-to product for a lot of people. Uh, you know, and then same species, same age, same everything. Just randomly, you'll get these idiosyncratic <laughs> animals that just die for you no know, or, or get really sick. Um, you know, and, and there's a lot of different variables that have been proposed, you know, whether, you know, like when you spray something out of an aerosolized can, are you really getting mm-hmm. the same dose, the really same amount every single time? Was it was the can shaken beforehand? Was it the same temperature? Was the snake, had the snake just taken a meal and so it was actively metabolizing and it was metabolically active? So many variables out there makes it really difficult to say like, yeah, this is the one safe and effective treatment. You know, this is this is the bulletproof, right. the, the silver bullet. Um, right. That said, you know, I mean, there's there's pro- there's products that we all know and like, um, you know, I think Preventamite is a great product when used as directed. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a product that I recommend spraying on an animal. Certainly, there are people <laughs> that have diluted it or that have, you know, done it and then wiped it off really quickly and gotten away with it. But um, uh, no, you know, I mean, it no. is it is it is a high concentration per per meter, and I don't recommend it. Um, you know, I, probably if I had to pick one thing that I turn to most often. Um, and this is just something that's been handed down from, you know, this isn't my recipe. This is, you know, but reptile vets for years have used ivermectin. Um, mm. And and that's something I've recommended for some clients, again, under the right circumstances for the right species. Uh, ivermectin is widely available at, you know, cattle feed stores. Um, usually mm-hmm. comes in like a 1% or 10 mg per mil solution. And and it's not very immiscible with water, but you can absolutely take a small amount of that, mix it with like a liter of water, shake it up really well. And that is something that you can spritz inside enclosures. It's something you can spritz on animals. I wipe it right off afterwards, but, uh, and I never, by the way, I never use ivermectin with, with turtles or tortoises, but, uh, for snakes, they seem to handle it really well. It's really good at, um, really good at killing mites. Um, I, I'll say this with a degree of hesitation, but yeah, I'm sure there's another reptile vet listening to me. That's like, are you kidding me? Like, we don't recommend this anymore, but honestly, I, I grew up, I used those no pet strips. I mean, I was, I was from yeah. that generation where we were, you know, we, we, we knew the guy at the pet store who taught us to cut the little no pet strip and to put it yep. in, uh, you know, you've probably seen this method before where, you know, and for those that aren't familiar, uh, no pet strips contain an organophosphate called dichlorvos, old school, nasty pesticide, kills everything, including people at the right concentration. Um, yeah, don't eat it. And, and so. yeah, don't eat it. Don't eat it. Yeah. Don't breathe it. Wear gloves when you touch it. But you'd literally like, you'd like open the no pest strip package. Like you'd rip right through the little warning label that says, do not break that. Do not open. Then you break it open. <laughs> then you break it open. And you, you read take, it, like, you the laugh, big yellow. You, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then you you take the little yellow square. Um, there are actually some dosages. I think I think Dr. Mader's book uh, publishes a, a, not a, a recommended dose, but a commonly commonly cited dose, which is it was like a certain. And I'd say it was like a an inch per ten cubic feet of aquarium space or something like that. But um, it, you know, when I was growing up, it was like yeah, just cut a small amount for a small cage and a larger amount for a large cage. But you'd put yeah. this in like a little you know ramekin, punch some holes in it. The idea being, you don't want the snake to have direct contact with it, but you wanted it to be able to kind of aerosolize and fume up the whole cage. And and that was basically what you're doing. Is you know we would always say like take the water bowl out because. We know dichlorobos is very water-soluble, and it will concentrate in there, and you can have a snake drinking poison. You don't want that. But you take it out for, like, 24 hours, and you just basically gas the whole cage. And you take it out, you know, toss everything, uh, you know, change the substrate, clean the snake off. And most of the time, in my experience, snakes did really well with that. I probably killed mm-hmm. five or six of them along the way, uh, not going to lie. Um, well, you know, I mean, it would happen. It would absolutely happen. So right. it's not, like, my favorite but from a cost mm-hmm. standpoint, from like a time and efficiency standpoint, uh, I mean, there's a reason that the pet stores did it. You know, they didn't have time. Um, you know, and and when you're talking about misting an individual animal and wiping it off and cleaning the cage and stuff like that, I mean, this was this is kind of a nuclear bomb. Uh, you know, you'd throw it in with a snake and take it out, and often they seem to do fine. Now we know better now. I mean, as we start to do blood work, we've seen blood work changes associated with those things, and. Um, I, I know, I, I think Dichlorbus is listed as uh, a carcinogen in the state of California, but what is it really? You know, um, mm. <laughs> you know, I, right. I think it's, I think it's been shown to be uh, a, a mutagen in human skin. Don't quote me on any of this stuff. I'm not a physician, but um, you know, it's, I, I know it's not recommended for a reason. It's, it's kind of a nasty stuff. There were a lot more idiosyncratic, reac- idiosyncratic reactions, at least that I've seen with it and that I've heard reported. Um, you know, it's cheap, it's efficient, but it's it's nasty stuff. So it's not my go-to, at least not anymore, now that I know better. Um, right. You know, there's there's all sorts of things. There's seven powder that's been recommended. Um, my favorite, uh, my, I should say my favorite idea is I keep hearing about biologic control with these, I think they're called hyopsis cannibal mites. Uh, okay. Have you heard about these? I I don't have heard. Yeah, them. I was going to ask about that. There was. Yeah, the idea is they're, they're basically a mite that is known to cannibalize other mites. I don't. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's probably maybe maybe Joe Kamen is still working and like making this stuff. Like, I don't know who rears mites, but there's there's <laughs> people out there. You can buy these. You can buy like this giant can of mites that somebody's reared. And uh, the idea is they, they feed obligately on other mites. And so the idea is you dump them in with the snakes and they have to go kill and eat all the mites in the enclosure. And as soon as they run out of things to eat, they die. And like in theory, it sounds awesome. In practice, I, yeah, in practice, I just don't know that many people that have done it and had a lot of success with it. Um, I think there's like a few things in some of the veterinary forums where people have talked about using it or asked about using it. I just, you know, if, if you learn of a case, I'd love to hear about it. It's one of those things that sounds so cool and I'd love to be able to recommend it. I just, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I kind of feel like after, I kind of feel like I would try it. I'd be the guy that'd be like, all right, good, go. And they eat all the mites. And then after all the mites <laughs> are gone, they'd be like, you know what? Feed on the snakes. And then I'd be like, God damn it. So like, I, I imagine <laughs> how that would go. They'd be like, would like killer bees months. or something like that. Exactly. Or, yeah. They'd do their yep. job, and then it would go horribly out of control. It's now like I've bred super mites. 
So you it, know those horrible you know, those horrible carry-on flies that we all hate. Yeah, you're familiar with the, the the little they like scurry across and then they fly away right before you can slap them. Those, my understanding uh, was, those came over. Those were supposed to be a biologic control for fire ants, and they're not see? working. But they have <laughs> no, turned out to be a horrible. <laughs> yeah, see, <laughs> biologic control. Sometimes it goes crazy. Case in point, cane toads and various other things. I mean, right. Like, I don't want to. I don't yeah. want to. I'm not sure if I want to try that. But yeah, uh, it's, it sounds heard, like a great idea in theory, but I just I can't. <laughs> I can't, no, I can't, can't recommend it. it. I can't speak for it, but it's, it's a neat idea. The one that I have heard and actually use is um, a dilution of, like, lice shampoo where you kind of dip uh-huh. the snake in it and yep. then kind of clean it off. I mean, would you – I think – but the the one thing they tell you is don't let the snake drink it because yes. um, it is still poison regardless right. of what we're talking about here. Right. Um, would you kind of recommend? Quickly, I've I've seen it used. Um, I don't yeah. have a lot of experience with it, but I, you know, it's absolutely one of those things that's you know commonly cited as this worked for me. Um, you know, I think most of those products are um, are uh, what are they called? I, I want to say they're like fipronil based products. The same types of things you'll see in like ant traps or um, you know flea and tick shampoos. Um, mm-hmm. all, all I mean. The dose makes the poison, right? You know that's a that's a basic mm-hmm. principle of toxicology. You know, even water's toxic at, at a you know high enough dose, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I think the concern in most of these cases, uh, uh, you know, while drinking it, of course, is a great way to ingest a toxic dose, is kind of this transdermal. You know, like how much of that toxin is going to go through the skin, and. Again, I think it's one of those things that's going to be highly dependent on the animal, how permeable the skin is, how long they're soaked, how how uh, concentrated the solution is, and I think. You know, if if you're judicious in your use of these things, you may have some success. But you know, this is where too I got to step back and say, talk to your vet. You know, if you if you mm-hmm. I mean, hope uh, this is a theme that came up before. You know, in, in my last talk, and it, it's self-serving, granted, but but seriously, you know, I love when my clients call me and they say like, you know, look, I don't want to take up a lot of your time, uh, but I just I wanted to touch base about this. Got this. I've read this. You know, we've talked about this before. You know me, like. I, I, I'm in a good position to handle this, but I just wanted to run by this with you real quick. You know, like I have so much more respect for that than like when they come in and like something's crashing and they're like, uh, fix it, <laughs> you know? And yeah. Like, I don't know what right. you gave I it. Broke I, it I broke it. I broke it. Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's, re- it's really frustrating. And, all, and then of course, you know, when it doesn't turn out well, then it's like, it's on me. I, I couldn't do it. You know, mm-hmm. I, it wasn't, it wasn't good enough and I have to go home and cry or drink or something, you know? So, um, <laughs> one of those there's no one size fits all there's no cookie cutter solution but you know i don't think any of these things are unreasonable as long as as long as you do it in kind of a a controlled and rational way and ideally you know having you know involved your vet what do you think about items like reptile relief um do you have any thoughts on those i uh i'm trying to remember what the active ingredient was in that i know there was a girl with the blue tongue skink thing that blew up a while ago. I'd followed that for a little bit. Um, do you remember? Do you remember what the active ingredient is? I don't. Hold on, let me look. I can. Yeah. I can look it he up. can look Hold in the bottle. bottle. <laughs> <laughs> I just so happen to have one right here. <laughs> great product placement, Eric. Good job. For only for only three payments yeah, of nineteen ninety five. Ninety five. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> See, who said we couldn't do commercials halfway through the show? Perfect. <laughs> kind of 
kind of small writing here, but it says uh, active ingredients. Getting old, I can't read what I got. You have your bifocals on. <laughs> I, I really thought he would have been more of a monocle kind of guy. <laughs> I can't. Dicyclic sodium sulfur. Is, is this a is this a Briar's ice cream commercial? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it has some weird ass chemicals in it. <laughs> oh, no, I'm gonna have to know. <laughs> um, it says it's natural chemistry, but hold on. I'm trying what to is, look. I wait, can't get a. What is unnatural uh, chemistry? Because I kind of thought all elements <laughs> were found on the planet, but I whatever. Um, okay. All right. Um, so. Now, I know we're going to kind of backtrack a little bit, but you were talking about uh, ivermectin. Um, yeah. What I've learned with ivermectin is that it, you, you, you spray the snake, you inject the snake, and then you put a little bit in the snake's water, and then you call it a day. Um, um, I agree with all of that except for the water. Um, okay. I will – yeah, I typically don't put it in the water. Um I suppose you I, – I wouldn't recommend putting it in the water. It's not that ivermectin okay. can't be ingested. It's just that I feel like I wouldn't have any control over the dose ingested. Um, right. You know, on the snake, yeah, on the snake, in the environment, again, you know, for quick contact and then wiping it right off, and at the right concentrations, and, and I always yes. use the same concentration. Um, again, for most species, I have a lot of luck with that. Uh, you know, I'll typically dose them like once a week. And then, you know, kind of let it ride and then repeat, clean the whole, you know, enclosure, toss everything that's tossable, start mm-hmm. fresh and do that, you know, once a week. And often after two or three treatments, that's all it takes. If you have a really massive infestation, though, or if you have a whole collection that's infested, it becomes a whole different same principles, but just a lot more labor intensive. Right. Now, what, what's your dosage for ivermectin? I typically do about a half a cc, half a mil. Mixed into a liter of water. Yes. Again, and that's not mine. That's, that's been handed down for you know many years, but that's that's a commonly cited one, um, and one that I've had some luck with. Uh, again, it, uh, the ivermectin solution is kind of an oil-based solution. It does not mix well with water, so you can't just pour it in and then start spritzing. You have to mm-hmm. shake it like crazy. I mean, you have to shake it, spritz a little bit, shake it some more like crazy, spritz it a little bit. Um, you know, so it's it's not a perfect system, but it's I think it's one of the safer ones that I've used. Okay. Have you figured out how to pronounce that thing yet, Eric? <laughs> yeah, I got, it, I got it now. Well, I don't All know right. if I'm going to pronounce it right, but it's uh, butcher it. Di, di, uh, diectol sodium sulfonate. That's me. It's over. It's over my head. <laughs> Brett's like, yeah. don't use it. I don't know what the hell that is. So yeah, I, I, I don't know what it. I don't know what it is. I'm not a chemist. I'm not a toxicologist. It's not one I have a ton of familiar, yeah, familiarity with. <laughs> I think one of the well, things that they say with with this is that it doesn't kill the eggs, but it's something that you uh, spray on on the snake. Um, yeah. So. I think we had Don Patterson on one time, and I kind of got this tip from him, and, and this is how I kind of use it. It's like he said he would go to a reptile show, and when he would come back, he would put the uh, the snakes in a tub, and he would spray the tub, and his feeling was that the snake could get in there, and when they go into a new you know a new type of environment, they sort of like get around, so it would get all up in their 
you know, their heat pits and their eyes and all that kind of stuff. Again, mm-hmm. we're talking pythons, but, um, you know, since it's a natural product that, it, you know, they could you could actually spray it on the snake and you would, you would kind of kill anything that was coming in uh, to your collection, so to speak. Like a, a, a quick type of uh, quarantine, I guess you would say. Yeah, um, yeah it's so. an interesting idea. Again, I'm not familiar with the compound and or or with the product really, so I you know I couldn't say whether I would endorse right. doing something like that or not. But I, mm-hmm. I guess my initial thoughts would be, you know, I don't think there's anything that really is the same as a real quarantine. You know, mm-hmm. um, right. it would be nice sure. to be able to fast forward a little bit, and, and God knows we've all done that. Um, <laughs> and, and not, I mean, just not done a quarantine, but, uh, you know, I, I think you either quarantine or you don't quarantine, um, something like that might make it a little bit safer, but I, I, you know, I, I wouldn't say that's a replacement. Um, right. I do know some people that are very, I mean, you know, people that do the ivermectin thing, just when stuff comes in and out, uh, trying to be that safe. And I guess, you know, my thoughts are if you can avoid use of a drug, wherever you can, you know, or if you have to use a drug, use the lowest amount of it possible. Is kind of yeah. philosophy. And I'm not, I'm not one of these like granola crunching anti-drug people. I just think, especially when you're dealing with, you know, so many, di- at least for me, I'm dealing with so many different reptile species and it can be really difficult to keep it, you know, to, to remember like, you know, who's going to have the sensitivity to what drug or to what product, you know, I think that just the safest rule of thumb, is, you know, if there is a way to correct the husbandry or a way to, correct the environment or to change the environment in some way that you can just avoid, you know, exposure to chemicals that we really frankly may not have any idea what it actually does inside the snake or what the long-term implications might be, or whether it can have, you know, affect their hormones, which might affect their breeding. You know, I just, if I can avoid just dosing them with stuff for the sake of dosing them, then I, I, I tend to try to do that. Sure. Yeah. Makes sense. I think that's probably everybody's approach would be, would be that they're so, I don't know, from everybody that I've talked to, they, they, they're afraid, you know, am I going to get too much? Is this going to kill my snake? I'm going to spray yeah. a chemical in the cage. Oh, my gosh, right. this can't be right. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, one of the things I was going to ask about is, uh, I, I can't remember who posted this, but they said that um, they had a, a slight mite outbreak. Uh, they were using Preventamite. Uh, they sprayed the tubs, no big deal, um, you know, uh, they came back, I think it was like maybe a day or two later, to, and they were feeding, um, and they were offering, you know, frozen thawed rodents that were thawed out in water, and it was wet. Um, they came into contact with the, you know, the newspaper that had it on there, and, and you know, ingested that and died. So, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. I thought that that was something worth mentioning, because yeah, it, 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 that that's activated with with water, right? I mean, well, yeah, it, it's ingested. You know, normally when you're using preventamite, you're you're using it just in the enclosure, just on the uh, you know some of the cage furniture, and then you're wiping it off um, or, or right. rinsing it off. And at best, there's going to be residues, hopefully not much, and you know maybe a little bit of an aerosized aerosolized component. But again, you know, an almost undetectable amount and we're talking about a snake that just took in a massive ingestion of pyrethrins and um you know that that's all going to be absorbed and quickly go to the bloodstream quickly hit the brain and could cause paralysis and kill a snake really quickly right Hmm. yeah again the dose makes the poison (laughs) sure yeah yeah Uh, that sucks that's unfortunate you know and and that's again where one, one of those things where 
You know, I mean, this is a product most of us have used at some point that we largely consider safe, not knocking the product at all. But, you know, it's just one of those things where it's like there's a right way and a wrong way to use it. And even an accidental wrong way can still be devastating. I I, I would guess that, I mean, I'm just going to put it out there that I guess my thought is, is that basically you take that product, you spray the enclosure, you let it air out, um, you take the water bowl out, um, then you put the snake back in and... You know, then you, you kind of go from there. Um, would you say that that's – is there anything wrong with that approach or – I don't think there's anything wrong with that approach. Again, I, it, just again with the disclaimer that, you know, you, you may get a, an animal that's just exceptionally sensitive to it. And, you know, I would right. try to keep in mind the size of the animal, the amount of stuff that you're using. Um, I, ten, I actually honestly tend to let it sit, and then I'll usually wash it out too. I know some people just wipe it out and then kind of let it evaporate. I tend to wash it out to remove any additional residues because it's not the mm-hmm. residues that are, it's not what you leave behind that is really helping. I mean, it's, it's what you've killed once you spray it in there. So my thought is if I can clean it as best as possible before I put an animal back in, that's ideal. That's what I'm trying. That's my goal, you know? Um, and, and the common theme, regardless of what you're doing is I never leave a water bowl in. Um, not when I'm treating it, you know, and once the animal has been cleaned, that's another, by the way, that's another thing. You know, you don't clean the animal well enough. You put it back in, it soaks in its water bowl because it has mites, goes and it ingests a bunch of water that's contaminated with whatever you just dumped all over the snake. And that's another great, you know, potential toxicity waiting to happen. So, um, right. you know, no perfect system, but I think you basically summarized pretty well the way most people have used Preventamite with success, yeah. Right. What? A, you know, there, you know, there are I, some, I guess, we didn't, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. I was going to say, you know, you, you touched on some of these chemicals and things, and I touched on a few mm-hmm. of, like, these kind of environmental things. We didn't touch on some of, actually, other really commonly cited methods, which are, like, like who here has used olive oil? I have never used that, but I have no, heard really? about it. And, 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 and Eric's little outline uh, says, uh, how should one use a product like Pam? And I'm like, does he mean the cooking oil? So, I mean, <laughs> is this where we're going here? Because I'm like, I, I never thought about, you know what? That snake's got bugs on it. You know what I should do? Yeah. Spray them down. Spray it with like Pam. Put put it in the oven at 250 degrees for about six minutes. Well, Flip I it over. Yeah, you're good. To, like, now he's trying to slither, and he's like, boom, the other side of the cage, because he's, like, greased now. Yeah. He's, so a, he's a greasy. Like, yeah, greased snake. I can't catch him. So, yeah. he, olive oil and... Pam, are these honest to God things we can do for killing the mites or helping well, no, the snakes? No, not Pam. Snakes? That's preventamite, Owen. Thank God. <laughs> All right. <laughs> God damn you and your abbreviation. Have you have you never been on a reptile forum? Good Lord. No. <laughs> no. I learned Prevent. everything I had to learn in 2000, and then I stopped talking to people. And then you so, just, okay. yeah. <laughs> okay, so olive oil. What I, I've heard that before, but I'm not really sure what 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 people are doing to get rid of the yeah. mites. What are they basically drowned in the olive oil? Is that the idea? That's <laughs> <laughs> basically exactly it. The oh my oil, god, <laughs> it's a real thing. People have used olive oil, and I, by the way, I remember like the first time I ever dealt with mites. I and I was a kid, but you know, I, this is probably early days of the internet, but. I had used I had used olive oil because I'd seen it recommended and it seemed like it was safe enough. Certainly safe mm-hmm. enough. 
Uh, it was a rosy boa, and I'll never forget this rosy boa crawling through my hands, all lubed up with olive oil. Like in retrospect, <laughs> like, like it, it probably looked like some weird fantasy or something. Like I'm sure out of somebody's weird twisted dream. But I'm like sitting there with this fat lubed up snake, like greasing it with olive oil. It was like the messiest thing ever. I had paper towels and I was trying to wipe it down. There's a little science behind that, and it's very, very safe, by the way. You're not, I mean, unless you drown your snake in oil, you're not going to kill it with olive oil. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, uh, if you were really or, concerned about that or, or you really just wanted to play it as safe as possible, I think, you know, it's a great thing to try at home first. Um, it, the, the idea is there are little pores in the side of the, the body of the mite that they actually breathe out of, and that's how they can have their head buried in the snake's skin and still be breathing. Um, and so the idea is, yeah, I mean, you literally smother the mite. Another thing that makes mites a little bit different than, or these mites in particular different than say ticks, they don't have any barbs on their little, it's called a hypostome. It's like the little needle that they stick inside the skin. They don't have, like, if you've ever mm-hmm. tried to pull a tick out, it's not easy. Mites, yeah, if a little bit, right. a little bit of manual pressure, they come right out. And the idea is a combination of the, the oil kind of smothering them and killing them, which realistically it would probably need to sit on there for like an hour to really kill them. But a combination of just kind of smothering them and making their life suddenly like a, an oily hell. Uh, and, mm-hmm. then, and then actually rubbing the, those, the oil off of the snake with a paper towel, you know, you end up removing a lot of them at, at all at the same time. Now, unlike, unlike, you know, ivermectin or any of your others, uh, it's not doing anything for the environment. So you still need to be doing something in the environment and the people that have tried to do this and they keep, you know, some people will say like, well, I clean the cage really thoroughly. Some people use bleach, by the way, 3% bleach solution will work too. But again, bleach can be caustic and bleach can linger in the air and can be really hard on the respiratory tract. But, you know, if you wanted to do something that was like all natural chemicals, uh, right from the earth, you could, you could, you know, spray a, a bleach solution into the cage and you could oil your snake I feel dirty just saying this. This is horrible. You can loop up your snake with olive oil. Just let it go. Just move and, forward. For the love of God. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and, and, that, and that may work. I mean, there are people that have had some success with that. So, you know, that's one of these kind of like, it's not biologic control. There's no risk of like albino mites, uh, you know, taking over the eating your tarantulas or anything like that. But, um, you know, it's it's an option. So, like, you could rub it. I mean, you could basically rub that on the snake's head, eyes, all that kind of stuff, and you really wouldn't cause any issues with the olive oil. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, okay. to, if if you got enough of it in the in the nostrils or in the mouth, certainly it would be a problem. But yeah, you know, snake eyes are covered by that smooth spectacle. They're not like our eyes where they're exposed. Um, you can literally pretty much every inch of the snake you can rub down with like a sponge or a paper towel with olive oil and help to smother the mites and get a huge number of them off. That might be one of those things where. And again, I'm just kind of speaking theoretically here, but you could you could probably kill a huge percentage of the mites, leaving very little behind, and then maybe get away with using a much lower concentration of even ivermectin or uh, or, or whatever your right. your cocktail of choice is. And you know, again, dose makes the poison. Right. So if I can reduce the dose, that's that's always a better thing, and still be effective, of course. That's a, that's hmm. a good thing. Right. And the the snake huh. will be all nice and shiny for like. A couple days. <laughs> I, so. I'm not. I'm not kidding when I say like they really do shine afterwards. I mean, I, I feel ridiculous oh, yeah. saying that, but I remember putting well, it back and being like, "Well, I don't think that was very effective, but at least he's really shiny." Well, that's actually <laughs> it, it, it's a there's the, the trick at a reptile show is if you get there early enough, um, everybody buffs. <laughs> every, I swear to God, everybody buffs their tortoises <laughs> with olive oil. Oh yeah. When you're walking through, they're all nice and shiny, the shells and oh, stuff yeah. like that. So if you if you get to a reptile show early enough. 
at certain tables they have like tubs of olive oil in their in their shining the tortoises. I swear to God, I was totally <laughs> I've, amazed. I've, I've seen the, this the I've time. seen that too. And yeah. by the way, it doesn't look for, it doesn't help you build any relationships with fellow breeders if you say, "Hey, can I borrow some of that olive oil? I need to go buff some of these mites off of my snakes." Exactly. Uh, Nobody n- will never like goes over well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Stay away from that. Doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh my God. Oh wow. <laughs> okay, so <clears throat> what about? I mean. I think one of the things that I think about is uh, if you have a large co- – I mean, I've talked to people that have had <laughs> mites in a large collection. Mm-hmm. And basically, they're at the point where they're going to quit. Um, how do you – I mean, how do you go in and approach – can you – okay, let me put it this way. Can you go in and say treat like, you know, this – set of cages and then the next day treat this set of cages or does it have to be you have to treat them all in one shot no i mean i think i think you just need to be systematic and i tend to apply the same i'm dodging your question a little bit because it's an, I, I don't have an answer but i, I would mm-hmm. say i apply the same principles to you know that i do with quarantine like i'll take the cages and try to take the ones that i know are the worst and make sure they have a moat or if you have a rack put the whole damn rack in a moat you know um Right. Make sure it's not up against the wall where they can crawl, you know, onto something else. But, you know, you can start to isolate things and then step by step start to replace all of your substrate with paper towels. You know, uh, it it can be it doesn't have to be all in one day. I mean, I guess that is sort of related to your question. Uh, I don't know that you need to do every single cage at once, but I think if you're taking a systematic approach and just kind of deconstruct your setups to where, you've got things really bare bones and you can take some of that control and put it back in your own hands, then you're going to be a lot faster and a lot more successful. Um, you know, again, thinking back to your life cycle, if you have, if you have a, a particulate substrate, if you have wood chips and you have a snake that likes to dump his water bowl, dude, you've got a perfect, perfect medium for mite growth, right? It's warm. You've got a heater, mm-hmm. you've got moisture, you've got tons of little dark crevices where they can reproduce like crazy. I mean, get rid of the, the particulate substrate. If you've got, um, you know, wooden log hides or something like that. I mean, wood creates an excellent material, excellent medium for them to get up into lots of little crevices and spaces, right? You know, get rid of it. Get, it gets plastic. It's something you can disinfect. Um, right. You know, uh, if, if you're using the types of cages that have like little lips or, or if you're using, if you're using sliding glass, <laughs> mm-hmm. I, right. I, I, you know, I know everybody loves it. I hate sliding glass. I'm like the guy that I get so much particulate substrate in the sliding glass. I know some people yeah, swear by it and it's no, personal no, preference, but I, I can never get that stuff clean. I can never get a cage fully closed. Uh, and, you know, any, again, any kind of nook and cranny, I mean, that's what they look for. They look for something that they can get into that uh, where they're protected as they, as the eggs hatch. So they're looking for like warm, dark places and any sort of like nook or cranny in a cage is going to be perfect for that. So if you've got vents cut into your cage, that might be another place where they hang out. Um, could you, I, could you yeah, wipe down your cage with? I, I know this is just an off-topic question, but could you wipe down the cage with olive oil and kill the mites too? Or I, yeah, I guess, I guess you could. Um, but would I think it the way it's eggs or like, no, I don't think it would. Well, I, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, right. You know, okay. the eggs the eggs are breathing through a membrane. I suppose maybe it would smother them, or at least when they hatch, they wouldn't be able to go anywhere. But um, right. You know, again, I'm extrapolating from like the one snake that I covered in olive oil, and I'll probably never do it again. I don't know that I would want olive oil, <laughs> right, all of right, that right. stuff, because it's like it does yeah. not come out. 
easily. It would smell nice. Maybe if you spray it with enough tan, then it will, 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 will wipe it out. But. <laughs> oh, God. I don't know. Okay. I know that was crazy Maybe you could question, make an olive oil moat. It just popped in my head. <laughs> yeah, and, there you go. Olive oil moat. There you go. Now we've got the best of both. We're learning. The best of both worlds. Yeah. yeah. And fill it with ivermectin. And there then, you go. Right. Now, now it's triple dead. <laughs> that, yeah, and that, by the way, is when I did walk through the snake room after the lights went out, the tub, the one tub that I would step on and spill everywhere, that's what would, you know, like when of you course. go walking through the, you walk through the snake room at night and it's like somehow you find like the, the one warm, once warm bowl of water that you thawed some mice in and forgot to pick up and you like yeah. splash like <laughs> nasty exactly. nice water all over the, yeah. It's like of all the places in the room, that's the one place your foot found. That would be right. that would be my tub of olive oil, permethrin. Oh yeah, uh, I'd kick it damn. every time. <laughs> every time. Yep. I think I was gonna say, um, you know, time frame for treatment. I mean, I hear this come up a lot. Uh, yeah. You know, one of the things that people say, you know, basically, I, I a responsible breeder, or, uh, somebody that's, you know, even if they're selling just a couple snakes, basically they should shut down uh, their their sales. Uh, you know, and not really sell anything for X amount of time. Some people say months. Some people say, you know, maybe four months. Some people say two months. I mean, for a treatment, you do a treatment, how often should you repeat that treatment? That's that's a great question. I mean, you, you asked two questions in one, and one is a very, you know, kind of ethics-based question that I think is really intriguing. Um, I don't know that somebody needs to completely shut down. I think as long as they're honest and straightforward about, hey, you know, I had a small outbreak of mites in this corner of my snake room and involved these snakes. I've got them in quarantine now. I haven't seen anywhere anywhere else. You know, it happened on this date, and then you can let your buyer choose your, you know, choose the the length of time where they're comfortable, you know, and they can kind of rely on the reputation of the – and and by the way, you know, this kind of goes back to what you were saying in the beginning. Nobody likes to talk about mites, and I think it's so Mm -hmm. interesting because I have so much more respect if somebody comes out and says, like, hey, (laughs) it happened to me. You know, I dealt with it. This is Here's what happened. I saw it. You know, I, I have so much more respect for somebody who is very forthright. Rico comes to mind, you know. I mean, somebody who just, it's like not afraid to hide their faults or their failures, but this is what I learned from it. This is what worked for me. I mean, just full transparency. Um, sure. You know, uh, you know, nobody wants to nobody wants to buy from the guy that has mites. It's like nobody wants to make out with a girl with herpes, but... Um, <laughs> That's what that's what people. But but you know, one is forever, and one is you know you can manage this. Um, and, and I think if somebody's really forthright about it, I think it says a lot about that person, and that uh, they're managing it properly, and they've got something that it seems to be working. You know, buyer's discretion. I think. Um, right. As for how long right. you actually need to treat before you can officially say, I mean, we know the life cycle is only two months. So I think if you nip it in the bud early and you're really diligent about watching for it and you're diligent about treating for it, um, you know, I think it's something that doesn't probably need to be more than six to eight weeks. Again, as long as you're following a good protocol that is working. Um, you know, if it's right. you saw some mites in a cage and you kind of dried it out and you think they're gone, but you haven't seen anything for two weeks and you're kind of quietly selling stuff again and you're not really, I, I don't, I, no, you don't get a free pass there. You know, it doesn't count. Mm-hmm. Right. So basically you should treat until you really don't see any more. Cause there's sometimes I hear people, I mean, I guess my, my the question would be is like, we're using chemicals, the least amount of, you know, use of those chemicals would be the best case scenario. So, 
Sure. You, you know, say the month goes by, you don't see anything. Do you, would you recommend just stop treatment or continue to treatment even past, you know, say for two well, months? Well, it's even even when you talk about like treating for a month, remember it, it, again if you were using kind of what I what I offer if you if I it were me doing my go to even with the ivermectin I'm only treating once a week so we're talking like three or four treatments so we're not talking about like thirty days versus sixty days we're talking about like three treatments versus four or five treatments um, and and if I didn't make it clear before if I am treating a snake like if I if I find an outbreak in the collection those animals are going immediately back into whatever my, my quarantine protocol was, my quarantine room, you know, mm-hmm. uh, ideally going in, right. going into, you know, a separate cage where they can be monitored really closely. It's really difficult to look for mites in a, a normal setup, you know, um, with cage right. furniture and backgrounds and things. But, yeah, if you can get them kind of into a quarantine cage and you treat them, you know. And, and by the way, it's the, the treatment interval isn't just about, you know, taking advantage of the mites' life cycle. Part of it is, certainly, because I know that, you know, I'm, I'm getting – eggs are hatching in that week. And so I'm killing, you know, more vulnerable stages. Uh, and then as they, if they lay eggs, I'm going back and I'm killing any new mites that are born. So yeah, part of it is, is life cycle strategy, but part of it too is I'm using that week to really watch carefully, you know? So if three weeks go by and I see nothing, maybe I do one more treatment and, you know, if week four, I'm still not seeing anything, you know, maybe I do one more treatment just to feel good about it. You know, I, I, that's a common approach to parasites is to, to treat, you know, two treatments after uh, you, you think you've eradicated it and then, you know, give it one more week. And if it's done, then declare it free and carefully introduce it back into your collection. But, you know, right. Uh, you're right. Not everybody's going to advertise like, oh, yeah, I treated these snakes for mites. And if it was six years ago and, and you haven't seen anything, does it matter at this point? I mean, I guess that's kind of debatable. But, um you know, kudos to anybody who's really forthright about that. I think that's that's awesome. Yeah, it's like I said. I think that's one of those taboo subjects for some whatever reason. Like, mm-hmm. just, I don't know. <laughs> I think I think it may have to do with, and I don't want to blame, you know, ball pythons in particular, but I think that the thinking is is that if somebody comes along and they have a choice between buying this more from this person and this more from that person, and you're talking about you know, yeah, thousands and thousands of dollars, and you know it's going to be the make or break between you know selling mm-hmm. that snake or not selling that snake. I think people, you know, they shouldn't, but probably they go and hide it, and you know, then mm-hmm. all of a sudden now it's in somebody else's collection. And not that, right. not to say that morphs ruin that kind of thing, but when you add that money into it, you know. I don't know. People kind of <laughs> sometimes they get shady, yeah. you know. Uh. No, well, and and it, I think there's there's a stigma around it too because it's like, it's one of those things that if you quarantine really effectively and if you're watching really carefully and you're really scrupulous about who you buy from, theoretically, I mean, you could go years or a, an entire snake keeping career and never have mites, you know. So I think yeah. part of it is, sure. you know, if you, I mean, it's a it's a preventable thing. It's not like you know, it's not like one of these insidious, like, it's not IBD where it could sit, you know, latent for for years and suddenly it just rears its ugly head. Nobody ever saw it coming. It's like one of those things where, you know, theoretically you could, it, it doesn't have to happen to you. And so I think a lot of people feel really bad when it does. You know, they're like, well, crap, right. I was really, sure. I wasn't careful. I didn't practice good quarantine. I bought from somebody shady because it was a good deal online, um, you know, uh, 
because <laughs> it was an auction, damn it. It supported U.S. Arc. I just had to do it. <laughs> uh, you know. I won the auction. I had right. to buy it. Yeah. Yeah, I had yeah, to buy no. it or they were going to blast mm. me on. <laughs> Lord. Yeah. Okay. So. I don't know. Is there um, uh I don't know. It's, uh, I don't know if there's anything else as far as, uh, you know, the mites that, that you can think of that, you know, maybe is uh, would be helpful. Um, I You know, I, again, I think my take-home message is there's a lot of information out there. Um, it, it's to the point where there's so much good information and there's um, and it's so readily available that I think a lot of people take mite treatment and their strategies right into their own hands. I, mm-hmm, and I, right. I hate to sound patronizing and self-serving, but but again, I would reinforce this is really where I think, although people do it and have had great success with it, ideally, if you're keeping reptiles, especially a lot of high-end reptiles or any reptiles, you really should have a relationship with a vet who sees them, you know, and, and this is a great opportunity to pick up the phone and just touch base, you know, hey, I know you've seen my collection, you've seen a bunch of my snakes, do you think this is a safe method, would you recommend this, I, I think I'm going to try this, w- what are your thoughts, you know, just run it by them. It doesn't have to be a long conversation. It probably doesn't even need to be an exam, you know, like a, a visit. Just touch base because it's so much better to prevent problems than it is to try to deal with them once they're, you know, too far gone. Um, mm-hmm. And this is one of those things that is like hit or miss. Like it may work or it might kill your snake. <laughs> you know, it's like there's very, oh, yeah. um, it's like, it, it's really what it comes down to. So, um, you know, touch base with your vet if you can. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, and just be be persistent. It's one of those things that can be so, so frustrating. But, um, like, it always drove me crazy. I'd occasionally see, like, the, the pet store, and it was like, that was just part of the routine. They just always kept the pet strips, the no pet strips, like, in the cages at all times. You know, it was just assumed that, like, you know, all the snakes there had mites, and, you know, the, the goal was to just sell them as quickly as possible so they could be somebody else's problem. It was like they didn't even try to hide it. It was just like, you know, if you find yourself eating so many snakes that you just have – a quote-unquote low-level mite infection. I've, I've, I've actually seen and heard of this. Like, you're doing it wrong. Stop. <laughs> Just stop what you're yeah. doing. You know, that's yeah. not, Don't it's do not that normal. anymore. Don't do that anymore you're, because you're you're asking for problems, not just for your own animals, but for the people that, that make the mistake of buying from you. Don't do that. Um, right. I don't know. That's it. I didn't think there would be so much to talk about mites, but you, you really could. Just <laughs> yeah. Talk yeah, and talk can. about mites. Each situation I, I, is so will... unique. Yeah, I will put yeah. it out there that uh, you're so right about the. Um, I really haven't had the uh, the need, fortunately, to have to go to um, to a reptile vet. Um, uh-huh. But there's a guy that's local, and he knows Owen. He knows he knows me through my dog, uh, and he knows uh, the other guy Matt. And you know, mm-hmm. it's it's so. I guess I I would recommend it because it's so relieving. Like I just felt so relieved. That I had this snake, it had a resurrection. I took it to him. Typically, you know, it's always the check, the uh, fix the environment. Something's wrong, blah blah blah. Make the assessment. Mm-hmm. The, the situation was is that I, 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 after talking to him, he thinks it's a case too. The hot spot was too small. The, the the male that I put in with the female was uh, was too big, and he basically bumped her out of the hot spot. So when the when I was cooling down. She didn't have a chance to warm back up. Maybe she was stressed yep. also because the snake was so big. Anyway, it just—it was such a—I I just felt so much better after going there and, and having the snake taken care of. And you know, he just reassured me that it wasn't that bad. And 
you know, and now the snake's doing great. So uh, yeah, you're you're absolutely right that you know you should try to find uh, you know somebody. Uh, you know, I know some people yeah. have a problem because it's not one local, but I, I would assume that I think I don't know if you talked about this before, but isn't there some kind of like uh, uh, like a you know a directory for, for that? There is. There's a really great one. There's the Association of Reptile, it's Reptilian and Amphibian Veterinarians, um, and mm-hmm. it's arav.org. And I, I, I recommend going to that website right now. If you're at your computer, go to arav.org. Right there on the home page, there's a link for find a vet. Um, and by the way, don't Google search this because we're actually in the process of completely revamping the website. But right now, Google has a very old link archived. And uh, if you go there... It's, you'll find people that are retired. You'll find um, you'll you won't find my name. Most importantly, which is really embarrassing. Um, <laughs> you need to make sure to go to the webpage for, for an up to date link. But go to arav.org and click on the find of that link and find your area. The the search feature is a little bit weird right now, and I think they're revamping that too. Um, like I think it says like lo- location, and it it doesn't really specify like zip code versus city versus state. But I think you can type in any of them. Um, and just search by your location and see what comes up. You'd, you'd probably be surprised. Um, what that is pulling up is anybody who is a member of ARIV.org. So doesn't necessarily differentiate between somebody who's board certified versus somebody who just, you know, like me at this point, has a, a very strong interest. But everybody on that list is paying an unfortunate amount of money and dues to stay very active in that organization. And, um, and what that also means is that they're getting a monthly journal um, with you know new studies, new reports, uh, interesting case reports. Um, it, it means that they're active in an online forum that all of those people have access to. It means that they're attending a conference once a year where they go and sit through talks or are presenting their own talks. Um, you know these are people that have demonstrated a, a commitment to reptile medicine. And you know I've mentioned before, like I, I know when we were talking about with Condros, like if you can bring your snake to a reptile vet. Awesome. If you can bring your chondro to a reptile that really knows chondros even better because they're very different. I know I've mentioned that before, but I, I hope that doesn't dissuade anybody from not going because they're like, you know, well, my vet says they see reptiles, but I have a Herman's tortoise and I don't think they see Herman's tortoises. It's like, just stop, just go, you know, because right. if they don't know, a good vet will tell you as, as I do all the time. I don't know. You know, you get in the habit of just saying, I don't know, but you know what? I'll find out. And the nice thing about you know, the reptile veterinary communities is so small. You know, we, I mean, we've all got each other on speed dial. If I don't know a species, you know, uh, uh-huh. I worked on a Gila monster recently. I have a Gila monster. I mean, I know Gila monsters pretty well, but there's a doctor in Arizona. Guess what he sees a ton of Gila monsters. I get on the phone and, you know, we're, we're having a consult, you know, so, so it's a very tight knit community. When people tell me like, you know, oh, there's no good reptile vets in my area. That's that's bullshit. Sorry. You know, it's there's there's just right. no excuse now between telemedicine, between the number of vets that will let you ship an animal in, myself included, uh, and and the awesome network of veterinarians, even small animal practitioners that have opened their doors to reptiles that will quickly get on the phone with a colleague to get an answer or to get the drugs that you need. Um, I think it's always worth. Yeah, it's it's worth the time to to establish a relationship because you don't want to do it when shit's hitting the awesome. fan. And, and and that's what yeah. happens. You know, you don't want to wait until it's too late. Establish the relationship now so they know who you are, so they can do things for you when it when when the time is necessary. Yeah. Awesome. You know. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. Cool. So 
let's get away from the horrible bugs that we absolutely all hate. <laughs> yeah, um, let's. <laughs> and uh, let's get on to your chondros. Um, what do you uh, can you give us an overview of your chondro collection and what you're working with and what you're trying yeah. to build up? Yeah, we're we're working with a, a lot of cool stuff right now. So we kind of got we dove headfirst in the chondros a few years ago, and so um, and, and did what probably a lot of early chondro buyers do, which is like they go chondro crazy and they buy like tons of baby chondros that hold tons of promise. And it's been a lot of fun raising them up and watching them grow up, but we're not quite at the point where uh, I, I don't think any of our females are quite at breeding age yet. Part of that is, is honestly, they're just too young, too small. Part of it is, I know some people would breed a three-year-old chondro. I'm not in that camp personally. Uh, just, I'm, I'm not, I think it can be done. I'm just not pushing mine. A part of it too, like I mentioned, been very, very busy. So I'm not, I'm certainly not fast growing these snakes. Um, We've got a handful of uh, arus that we've we've held back from uh, we raised a few years ago. We've got um, I've got jeez, I got you're gonna make me walk into the snake room. I'm gonna, I'm yep. gonna go kick over that tub. <laughs> <laughs> um, we've got some locale animals. We've got some. We've got a few designers. I have an affinity for the high yellows. Shaw really likes the blues and blacks. Okay, so we've uh, we've got. So okay. I'm looking here. I'm kind of going down the line. So yeah, we've got. I've got uh, one of David Newman's Tinley Diablo babies. Sorry, Brian Susan. David Newman, Brian Susan. Oh, I gotta. Right now, everybody forgets Brian. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we've got. I've got a Kofi Obiak that I got at ICAST a few years ago from from Ryan Burke. That's something else. I think I mentioned this before. A lot of these, you know, almost each of these animals we got from either a friend or somebody who's become a close friend. Got a beautiful Cyclops from Melbourne now from a few years back. Um, we've got Boboshi, who was uh, featured in the calendar a few years ago, a very dark baby who's become a really beautiful blue-green adult. Uh, that was a TSK animal, a uh, snakekeeper animal. I've got one of uh, Kim Burge's, um Fern and Squeeze babies. Uh, very cleverly named Burgey, beautiful tricolor. Um, we've got Sundrop, whose lineage goes so far back, I couldn't even begin to recount it all, but um, I got him from uh, a gentleman who left the Condor community a few years ago. I got Lemony Peasy over here. This is this came from Bob Kelly. This was one of the Jackpot Pineapple Express babies. Um, mm -hmm. I've got a really interesting Biok named Tempera. That was another one of David Newman's animals. Um, that he sort of gave to us on permanent loan after it had a little medical issue uh, that I don't think any of us expected it to get better from, but it did. So she's just kind of a permanent fixture in our collection now. Um, we've got some of Peter Jellis' animals, um, two from him. I've got a few interesting, like, little locale mixes. Shell has a, uh, a blue line that she got from Nima that just turned into the solid mustard and refuses to change colors. So that's kind of cool. Um, that is cool. So, yeah, we're, you know, we've got a lot of cool stuff here. And then, you know, that's the chondros. We've got a much bigger collection than that. Um, we've got a, a, a small collection of colubrids. I was briefly, like, big into locale milk snakes for a little while. So we've, I've got a clutch of Pueblins from this year. Um, we've got some shell hatched, a, an adorable little clutch of Tessera corn snakes that are kind of cool. We've got um, – I just actually paired up some of my emerald tree boas, northern emerald tree boas this year. Um, I've been really disappointed in my lack of success with them so far, but, uh, you know, the season's young. Who said that, right? 
Yes. Season is always <laughs> yeah. young. The season's young. Yeah. We're just now getting the snowstorm, so maybe we'll see some action there yet. But yeah, yeah. we're we're tinkering with all sorts of fun stuff over here. Um now who who else is working with Angolans? Cuz I, I I'd like to think I'm working that's with me. Angolans too. That that's him. I, I they look too yeah, much like Eric. Yeah. I can't I can't get behind them. They look too much like ball pythons. I love them. But they feel, I love them. But they feel like Gila monsters. They're so different. Yeah, but They're you so know what? Cool. I'd rather have a Gila monster. Or you Well, know I have one of those, too. I mean, those are cool, too. I don't have one of those. <laughs> <laughs> you know what else is bumpy and I love? Rough scale pythons. So I'm good. I don't yeah. have to with the bumpy reptile. So... <laughs> I thought he was coming on to me for a second. I uh, yeah, whatever. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, reminiscence of Tinley. Anyway, um, do you guys have any yeah. readings going on with the Condros and the Angolans and all that fun stuff? No, no. The the, the Condros, like, like I mentioned, are all a little bit too small still. Um, we've got mm-hmm. a lot of cool plans in the works, but nothing that we're trying for this year. Uh, the Angolans, I will not be breeding because my pair is two boys, uh, as it turns out. But, um, I do have a female in the queue. She's on a, uh, she's on a breeding loan to somebody else right now from a a friend of mine, um, that, uh, I'm I'm hoping we'll get next year, but no. So that's, that's a no go for this year. Um, I did just get a clutch from the Boyga though. That's been, uh, that's been a, a very small, but very consistent project for me the past few years. That has been so much fun. Um, yeah. absolutely love those little snakes. If you like chondros, if you like emeralds, if you like pretty green snakes that will bask openly, that are very interactive, um, that go through a cool ontogenic color change and that not a whole lot of people are working with and, and that are, are challenging, but also very engaging. Um, boy, are for you. I absolutely love these snakes. Um, this was, yes. this was just kind of a, go ahead. I was going to say just, Sorry, I cut off. I was gonna say, yeah, just talk a little bit about them. I find I was looking to your Facebook uh and I saw that you were working with them and I thought that was uh pretty cool. So uh I'm curious yeah, about they're, them. They're, I really don't know much about them. Yeah, they're they're really neat. They were kinda of one of these you know, something I just saw a picture on the internet at some point, like years ago, and I thought they were super neat. Um, you know, I'd seen pictures of the adults and they look like green mambas with big alien heads and I'd seen pictures of the babies and they were like bright orange and with cool green heads. I mean, they're just such a neat, intriguing species. And I, you know, you could find pictures. They were pretty re- readily available because people keep them in Europe. Um, right. With some degree of success, apparently. Uh, but I had just never seen any here. I'd been like dying to get my hands on some, um, the handful of reports that I had, you know, people would talk about like they came over and they just died, they came over and they just died. And that seemed to be everybody's experience. Nobody was really sure why. Um, I, and I, I finally, I found a guy out in Utah, um, who had some great success, success with uh, an F1 pair. Um, he was, we think the second person in the U S to ever produce them. And, um, I like just had to get some and I, I paid like an ungodly amount of money when he was the only person that had them. And, um, right. I ended up buying my first pair and, um, they, they grew amazingly quickly um, I was really lucky to breed them like at their third year and they were very different snakes than a three-year-old, at least our three-year-old chondros. Um, and, uh, I ended up acquiring another pair and then another pair and then I held back what I produced. And now I have like this giant collection of boyga <laughs> that, uh, 
I've kind of just been teasing the market, taking pictures, and um, you know, every people have expressed a ton of interest. And I, I guess at some point I'll probably just have to start letting some go. Um, but I've been very greedy about them. I, I just think they're so cool. I, I love each each one of them. It's always kind of a challenge. They're a little bit difficult to get started. I, but I mean, so are chondros, right? So are so are some everything. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, so so there's probably they were an interesting intersection for me because I spent a lot of time working with some of our locale uh, lamper pelting species, like your king snakes. Oh my God, like. Uh-huh starting starting red milks or starting scarlet kings like which i did that for a few years um mm-hmm. you know it was kind of like an arboreal version of that it was kind of interesting um but i got them started and i got them growing and I kind of learned some things along the way that really seemed to help and i was really excited about two years ago i like bit the bullet and i bought like you know jim sharphorn's pvc cages he's got like mm-hmm. the yeah. giant like you probably have these for some of the carpets but like four foot by two foot by two foot I um I, yeah. I set up a few of those. I like just got a giant like stack of those and set them up with huge pro products panel. I mean, just spared no expense. Like the thick quarter inch glass with huge branches and big, you know, wide, uh, you know, surface water bowls. And up to this point, I had been keeping them kind of like in a shoebox system. And again, this is where like, you know, we grow up on ball pythons. With all due respect to ball pythons, but like a lot of those, you know, a lot of people keep those and they think like, oh yeah, snakes. You just keep them in shoeboxes. It's like <laughs> these snakes really do a lot better not in shoeboxes. Um, not just, I'm sure, from a breeding standpoint, from a keeping and growth standpoint, but they're just so much more enjoyable, you know? I mean, they do so much. They, these are snakes that, and, and I've never been to Thailand, but I, I know people that have, and they've, you know, photographed these snakes for me when, when they've been there. They are, they are quite common, and they are uh, snakes that will use, like, every aspect of their environment. You can find them like near humans, you can find them on the forest. You can find them up in the trees. You can find them on the ground. You can find them in tree holes. You can find them under logs. Like they really will use every aspect of their environment. So it's really interesting to have them in a huge cage and watch how they move, like from the perch under the branch to like they're basking, you know, swimming in the water bowl. And now they're like under a hole or in a tree, like in a log, like they will go everywhere. It's really cool to see how they use their environment. And especially like when they're feeding, the way they'll ambush from, you know, out of a log or when they're breeding, the sites that they, they select to do that. Like it's just been so much more enjoyable to have them in, a, in an enclosure like that. But uh, awesome. yeah, they're, they're, they're really cool. Um, I actually took a picture the other day. Uh, the last clutch that I got, uh, she gave me what looked like five fertile eggs and what's probably going to turn out to be a slug, but she laid one um, on a branch, <laughs> which I'd never seen a snake lay <laughs> an egg, like perfectly balanced on a it was really weird. It was like perfectly balanced between the branch and the temperature probe. Um, like just on a stick. And I was like, Oh, okay. Well, thanks for laying an egg on that stick. It was like, <laughs> like wow. Like sweet. Um, I, I'm thinking that one will probably be a dud. It was probably just, you know, an afterthought, but it was kind of an interesting right. place to put it. But yeah, they're, they're very, very huh. cool snakes. Um, not a lot of people working with them. I'll mention too, by the way, cause I did find a guy who was, um, I won't mention any names, but was supposedly importing them from a breeder in Europe and, uh, you know, like seemed to be getting them in quantity. And so I, I bit the bullet kind of against my better judgment. I got a supposedly European captive bred pair, again, hoping to kind of be able to outcross my friends a little bit because there's not that many different lines in the U.S. And uh, I repeated the same mistake everybody else did. They And they I got them in and they seem to be doing fine. And then they just both suddenly died. So I don't know no. if it's related to, you know, 
something that they come in with or something that they're not exposed to, that they are exposed to in our collections, or if it's just the stress of the travel or if they're not actually captive bred and they're coming in, you know, I didn't, it's not like I just dosed them with parasiticides when they came in I quarantined them and fed them and they seemed to be thriving and they just, but they crashed and burned. So, um, I, I don't know what that's about, but I think there's definitely still some kinks to work out if we're bringing in wild stuff. Uh, but the captive things seem to be doing really well. And I've been, you know, really excited to be kind of like right at the forefront of something that very few people are working with. Are they kept similar Which, to, I mean, are they, is it kept similar to a chondro or is it, are they cooler? You have to keep them cooler. Um, I, you know, I would say probably very similar. Um, you know, mm-hmm. they come from a pretty similar region of the world, but I, I guess the big difference is I give them a lot more room. You know, they're they're kind of like an arboreal gotcha. racer almost. They, uh, you know, whereas condors <laughs> seem to be seem to be. I don't know if this is ideal for them, but you know, they seem to do okay, and we keep we tend to keep them in relatively smaller cages as long as they've got like a, a slightly warm side and a slightly cool side, and they can move between the two. They seem to do okay, but these guys right. really do take advantage of like every aspect of their environment. So I like having them in a much bigger enclosure. They're a lot more active. Um, I was going to back up for a second too and say, speaking of like mm-hmm. working on cool stuff and being right at the forefront, I wasn't plugged in. You guys were talking before, but a big hat off to uh, to Ryan at Molecular Reptile. I just want to say I've never met Ryan, never spoken with him, but I've kind of watched like just amazed from a distance for many years. Uh, he's working with uh, yeah. um, a lot, a lot of the you know the species that I either kept or always dreamed of keeping. Um, yeah, it, it, I just have been so so impressed. Uh, He's he's one of these guys that's really I don't want to say going against the flow, but he's you know he's taking species that you know a lot of people have either dreamed of working with or said you know well that's cool but we just we we can't do it and he's doing it and I just think that's I've just impressed and he's doing it in a very professional way. Um, just they look like top notch animals and and their presentation is just excellent. I've, the, I, I think some of those species are so difficult and it's not just because they're difficult but it's because people haven't taken the time to really learn about what they need. And the fact that he's had that kind of success with them says to me he's doing something right. So a, a big kudos to him. Definitely. Yeah, he's like a, he's the type of guy, you know, from talking to him, um, he's the type of guy that really takes to heart that uh, pay attention to your snakes type of thing. Like yeah. he really has that dialed in to, uh, I call him the python whisperer because it just seems like <laughs> when it comes to uh, yeah. pythons and boas, that guy kind of, you know, he kind of has it nailed in. Yeah. So. That's so cool. I had yeah. a, uh, I had a white-lipped python. She was, uh, uh, got her from Pro Exotics, 2001, and she was mm. just hand-raised, big golden northern, and she was puppy dog tame. I still have some awesome photos with her. Um, I got her you, a male who was, go ahead. I mean, you got lucky. That's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> so. Oh, I know. <laughs> I, know. I mean, the puppy she dog was, tame. She was captive hatched. I can send you, man, I can send you pictures. Like I actually have some really stellar, like professional photographs. I mean, you could hold her tail and she'd reach the floor. And I mean, she would just, now I, she was cage aggressive like all of them, but once you got her out, she would just sit on your arm. I mean, she would sing to you. She would whistle. I mean, she was just yeah. the coolest snake I'd ever had. I bought a, uh, a really awesome male, uh, from actually a, a carpet person, Charlotte Johannesson. You may know uh, her. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. But yeah, I I bought my mail from her. He was a douchebag, but but gorgeous. <laughs> and um, 
I didn't tell. I always had dreams that they would. (laughs) I I tried two seasons in a row before vet school to try to to try to pair them up, and they never showed any interest in in each other. I mean, he hated every he hated the world. Um, Of course, of course. So I never had any luck, but I sent them to uh, a friend of mine from my hair out on the west coast when I went to vet school. It was supposed to be a little breeding one, and she kind of fell off the face of the earth like two years in. And it took me another two years to finally track her down through her husband, who I had no relationship with. But long story short, she, like, couldn't ever face me. She just felt so horrible about what had happened. But apparently, in all their work through a local reptile rescue, they had some horrendous virus that supposedly swept the collection and killed everything. And uh, so I never got those two snakes back, unfortunately. But that that female was my heart, and I've always dreamed of having uh, another white lip. But I just... <laughs> it will, would be I'd be hard pressed to find to another list. one ever like her. I, I will add you to my. I'm, right now, I'm raising up. Uh, I have two captive, born and bred girls that I'm raising uh-huh. up, and the one is a tiny little like doesn't even have the gold on it yet because it's so freaking uh-huh. tiny. Like it is a noodle. Yeah. Um, and then the boy I got was a, um, a wild caught, but I, I I brought him in as a little guy. He's an mm-hmm. asshole. <laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. The two of them act just like carpet pythons. The girls, because they're like, may they might nip or whatever, but they're perfectly fine. He's just a psychotic little. Mm. So yeah. I might be replacing him, but hopefully, <laughs> I, I do. What Ryan does is like something I, 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 if I ever get a black face white lip to be in my collection, sitting on a clutch of eggs, I may die mm-hmm. right there. I might just dissolve. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> that's know. it. It's over. No. So. That would be like my dream. I, they're oh, just yeah. they're such cool snakes. Um, I'll tell you a cool, you know, one of my cooler white lip stories. So um, this is not this doesn't have like a profound moral or like you know, and it, but it's it's just something to chew on because I've been chewing on it for several years now. Um, I remember one cold night. This is when I was in New Orleans. Uh, when I was a grad student, I lived alone. I had a one bedroom apartment, which meant that I slept in the living room and I had a snake room. Um, and I had a futon that was adjacent to the snake room wall. And I remember like falling asleep. Like I didn't really have, I had a space heater that I used in the snake room. It was a lot cheaper not to heat the rest of my house. So I just remember I could like practically see my breath in the room that I was in. Uh, and it was cold and I had just introduced these white lips and they were in a big enclosure, uh, Mm -hmm. just on the opposite side of the wall. And I remembered, um, I remembered hearing them hissing at each other. And not like an aggressive, like, like my douchebag male was like hissing at my female. It was almost like a, it was kind of like a soft, like, like, yeah. and, and like, like a call and answer. Like they were responding to each other. Talking to and each I other. And I just remember yeah. like, yeah. And I, I just remember like, like thinking, you know, certainly if they were scared or if they were buffing or if they were, you know, striking or something like that, it just didn't sound any of that. It was, it was more that calm, like. You know, if you have like a like a python or a boa that's crawling around on your arms, and suddenly they just kind of let out like a relaxedness, and it's like they're just talking to you. That's like kind of mm-hmm. how it was, and it sort of with this call and answer for hours, where they were just kind of like talking like that. And you know, I realized some of it might have just been they were moving or they were expelling air through their through their glottis, and it was just happening happening to make noise that was in the frequency that I could hear, but. You know, we've said for years that snakes are deaf, and and we're we're challenging that idea. Snakes do have a tympanum; they they do have uh, the same internal structures in the head that allow them to hear sound. We thought for years that it was probably only lower frequencies, and and there's there's some data now where we're questioning that. And um, 
And I've, I've thought, I've gone back to that over and over and over again. And I've thought like, could they have been courting each other? Like, could they have been communicating in some way that didn't really make sense to me at the time? But like, was there maybe uh-huh. more to this vocalization than, and, and I don't know, you know, I'm sure people would probably disagree and say, you you were probably really high. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I don't know, you know, I, go, I swear, what? <laughs> I swear to God, man, I swear but to God, man. I've, I've gone back to that over and over again, and I and I've wondered if there was maybe something more to that. And I can't, I can't say, but uh, I, I just remember thinking oh. they were, if nothing else, they were just such cool snakes to have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, and maybe I'm wrong, yeah. but when you had your adults, weren't aren't they very like uh, mate selective? Isn't that an issue uh, with those? I did because, and it just seems to be, and that's something I actually talked with Ryan about. Is they seem to be like compatible. And if the pair yeah. isn't compatible, it's never going to happen. Um, yeah. It, 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 even if they are compatible, it still might never happen. But you have a better chance if they're compatible. So yeah. um, it, it, I I had two pairs of blackface white lips at one point. And Man. the one pair was never compatible. And those were, the ones Were those that Matt Turner's were, by any chance? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I one pair was. I almost bought those snakes, you asshole. I seriously almost bought those snakes. I seriously was breaths away from buying those snakes. But remember how I said I was Judging? I could see my own air because I wasn't turning on the heat? That was why I didn't buy those snakes. <laughs> but I know exactly the pair you're talking about and I almost I almost owned those animals. <laughs> yeah. They they were they were psych the male was psychotic. And we yeah. had two females and well, we had a female and a male of our own, so when they got when we got that pair, I'm like, screw it, we'll swap, because then obviously they're not breeding with each other, so we'll change it up. And we did, and the one pair was actually getting along very nicely, but then the other pair, which was the male and our big-ass female, they decided, like, one day at 3 a.m., because I was keeping them in my bedroom, that they'd had enough of it with each other. So I woke up to them, like, throwing each other against the glass and biting each other. I'm like, oh, shit. So I actually had to separate them, and they, they messed each other up. I mean, they it no. was, they never saw each other again. Um, I, I never got the female up to snuff again to attempt to breed. Uh, the male was just pissed at the world after that point. So it was never – they were definite compatibility issues. The The golds that I have – they were all compatible with each other. They never really fought, but they just never bred either. It didn't, they, right. they just stared at me. So yeah. we decided to redo the entire project with tiny little ones that will be raised, like, in-house and yeah. give us a better shot. Plus, those animals yeah. were all 10 feet long, like huge Jeez. animals yeah. that had skipped from people, owner to owner to owner. So <laughs> it, was, there, it, was, it was never going to happen. So yeah, yeah, they wow. were big. Yeah, yeah. They, yeah. They were big. Well, everything's big. Everything's big to you. So you know, <laughs> yeah, that's <it's>... true. <laughs> that is true. That is true. Uh, yeah, I um, I miss those snakes though. One of, yeah. Yeah. One. I I remember going to uh, Owen had what he called Site B, and that's where he <laughs> kept all the. Uh, uh, that goes yeah. all the crazy species, you, yeah. if you will, like the white lips and scrubs and you know olive pythons and all these like uh, you know species that most people don't care about type of thing. Um, right. But uh, 
Chris pulled that out, that that white lip out, and I was, and it's just striking in mid I'm like, oh no, <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, I don't want this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he just loved it. He's just like, oh, oh yeah, mm-hmm. so cool. I'm like, oh, he's beautiful. Right. He's like chewing on somebody. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like you know, they are cool snakes, though. Yes, very cool. They're snakes. they're very cool snakes. I, I, I could, you could talk me into some of those again. Um, again, though, that's a species where if I could do it over, if I could do it over again, that was where I feel like I was less mature in my in my snake keeping, if you will. Uh, mm-hmm. I was uh-huh. uh, not a not a Jedi yet. I was, <laughs> I was, uh, <laughs> you know, I was I was keeping a lot of, especially the, you know, if I needed a larger larger enclosure on the budget I was on, and I, I, I mean. By all estimation, I was breeding a lot of snakes. I was doing well for myself, but I, I was I was cutting corners, and I had snakes like that in large fifty to seventy five gallon aquariums and stuff like that. And if, right. if if I could do it over again, I would have you know like what I'm doing with the boy guy. I would have much larger enclosures. I would be dedicating you know entire closets, entire rooms, even you know to to really giving them the type of different strata that they need. The different uh, perch elevations, different temperature ranges, different, you know, types of hides. Uh, I, I really think that that's, and I'd be interested in Ryan's thoughts, but I would bet that he's probably giving them a lot more than I was. I could be wrong, but um, mm-hmm. I know when I, I talked to Tom Kyogen and, uh, and granted, you know, this was conversations from years ago and maybe some of the thinking's changed, but he was telling me about some people he knew that were even having a, a limited success, preliminary success with Bowellans back then. And it seemed mm-hmm. to me they were just giving them so much more space, you know, it was, and, and when he was having success with, uh, with his white lips, uh, early on, you know, he was saying he was just giving them so much more room. He was letting them be snakes. These were not, these were not shoebox snakes. These were snakes that really needed, uh, like a, like a big environment. And I'm sure that had to play a little bit into the success as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can see uh, that. That's interesting. They do move a lot. Yeah. Well, and to your point, I mean, some, I mean, the, some of these black phase animals, ten feet long. I mean, that's not something you can cram into a, a little glass box or a, a big tub no. and hope that they're gonna. I mean, they they just they need more than that, you know. Yeah. It, it, to you be can, honest, it's like you got to set them up like um like an olive python. You got to yeah like cage wise di- diameter kind of stuff like cage measurement wise. They got to be it's got to be big in my opinion. Right. Right. Even if the snake you isn't know, that big. I will defend the python people, you know, they're, they're anthill snakes, <laughs> they're, they're termite mountain snakes, very, mm-hmm. very happy to live literally curled up in a ball in a dark place. They'll emerge to breed, they'll emerge to feed, they'll emerge, you know, right. move around. But, you know, I mean, for the most part, they're, they're happy. They feel content with a protected and warm inside a, a, a box. But um, to the extent that that type of housing has sort of dictated the way that we, you know, um, keep so many other species, it's really unfortunate because, uh, you know, that's not how probably the vast majority of snakes n- need to be kept. Yeah, you know, yeah, the, I would agree. Thing, I've, Drops I've kinda, mic. I've kinda, <laughs> <laughs> I think the thing that, um, you know, first attracted me to Morelia in general, both carpets and chondros, um, is the fact that uh, they were out in the open and that you could you know, have this python that pretty much perch and, you know, you could see it and check it out. And, you know, I guess as the collection grew and space and all this stuff, it's like, 
I keep my animals much smaller than than most people, so they, mm-hmm. they're you know I have them in like uh, you know vision the bigger vision racks and stuff, and I, I think they're quite content in there. But I, I'm I always felt that part of the reason for caging is more for the keeper than the kept. You know, like yep, you you want to see it. You know, it's not necessarily mm-hmm. better or, or for the snake and sometimes maybe stresses them more. I find that with, uh, it's weird, Matt was always talking to me about, you know, bluffs and short tails and keeping them. They they like to be crammed in. Like, you know, you take them and put them in a bigger, a bigger, you know, as you're moving them up and raising them up, uh, they, they mm-hmm. kind of stress out sometimes and then they don't eat. Yeah. And they're like in a bigger enclosure. Um but I guess look at the type of snake that is, you know. But I don't know. Sure. The, the more yeah. and more, like, when I move my, when I finally move and move the collection, I probably move to a lot of, like, cages. Like, diamond pythons. Like, yeah. why don't you, like, my diamond pythons are in, I move them to cages because I want to see them, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah know exactly. That, you know, That's another thing that, interesting like. Interesting. I was going to say, interesting yeah. enough, it, I would I would go with what you're, uh, what you're saying with the uh, uh, with the species that you're keeping is that you notice these habits, like so when the light clicks on at uh, six o'clock in the morning, you know yep. it goes up <laughs> to this one part of the perch and it perches there and it stays there for about you know maybe an hour or so, then it moves down and you know when the light mm-hmm. kicks off, drink the night, and then... it comes back up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty neat. So yeah, it really is. I'm sorry, and, you, I and cut you're you absolutely off. right. I mean, that's another thing that like has always boggled me is like. You know, we gravitate towards the, just the most stunning examples of our species, the most brightly patterned, the most colorful, the most, you know, the most robust. I mean, just these, and then we we put them in a box under the bed, you know, where they don't get in a bin, light yeah. And when we <laughs> never know. see it again, you know. Honestly, that was one of my frustrations, and and this was an entirely keeper error. You know, I, I when I was keeping a lot of these gorgeous locality milk snakes, it was like. You know, I was drawn by all the, the guys posting these incredible pictures of them, or or even better, the in situ pictures. You know, from you know the field herpers, and I man, and I had <laughs> entire boxes, entire piles of shoe boxes. You know, and even if you even if they were see through, I mean, the snake was still under a log somewhere. You'd never see it. Um, mm-hmm. And and that's what I loved about the animals. You know, that were are, are so willing to bask and perch and show off. Um, but uh, you know, I was a few years ago. I was down in Brazil. I was doing some veterinary stuff down there um, when I was still a student. But I remember uh, I, I got to go to this awesome place called Instituto Butantan, and I spent about a month there. Uh, if you were in the venomous community, you would instantly know the name. Um, it's where they produce all of the anti-venom for pretty much the entire country of Brazil. So they've That's got awesome. like entire collections of hundreds of Bothrop species and all these all these different venomous. They have an entire veterinary division just dedicated to their spiders. They've got widows they've got um uh recluses wow. they've got you know 16 different species of scorpions and they're they're actually, there's literally a veterinarian down there who just manages the invertebrate collection and helps to like you know literally extract venom from those animals but it was really cool you know they knew that i was like interested in you know the, the herb stuff the creepy crawly and so like they'd take me around and show me stuff but of course they had to show me some of the local things i'll never forget you know one of my it was like my first week there and this guy like pointed up into this palm tree, like the type of palm tree, like you really kind of need binoculars to see the top of it. I mean, it was one of these just giant 60, 80 foot tall Brazilian, you know, probably hundred year old palm trees. And I'm looking at like this bunch of coconuts and he's like, no, 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 look closely. And I realized that this massive ball at the top of the, the, the palm tree was not coconuts. It was this huge boa. It was just, just a wild, you know, uh, Brazilian wow. 
boa constrictor constrictor. And I'm looking up at this thing and thinking to myself, that thing's got to weigh 60 pounds, 80 pounds, you know? And there it was at the top of the canopy basking in direct sunlight, you know? And I was trying to think, wow. like, you don't even think of that as, like, a like a species like that. You know, you think of that as, like, yeah, people keep them in racks. You know, people mm-hmm. ram and keep them in racks. And these are, I mean, these are snakes that even at that weight are climbers. They're baskers. They're they're utilizing that space. I mean, think how muscular a snake like that is. You know, they're not muscular to sit on a floor. You know, they're climbers. They're yeah. constrictors. And, uh... It's funny, too, because I, um, you know, when I designed my herp ward at Churchland, and I haven't really talked much about the clinic where I work, but, uh, you know, when I came there, I got to design the entire herp ward. It's all built by Habitat Systems. It's just an incredible state-of-the-art. That's awesome. My boss was really cool. He let me design it from scratch. I worked with Tom and and the people over there, uh, and Nigel over at Habitat Systems, um, you know, Pat was amazing at communicating with me and helping me to get exactly what I wanted, but they built, like, this beautiful custom ICU just for snakes. And, of course, you know, of course, I, I created it to be very versatile, and I can have, you know, climbing species and burrowing species and a little bit of everything. Um, but, you know, I, I definitely – it was a little biased towards, like, arboreals. Those right. are, mm-hmm. you know, some of the, so those are some of the higher end snakes that people are willing to pay a little bit more for. And I really want, and, and something that you really need specialty terrariums for, you know, you can't, they're not ball pythons. They need, they need very specialized care. So I have some really like nice, you know, beautiful habitat systems like arboreal units, but, you know, of course not everything I see is a, is, is a, a an arboreal snake. So, you know, I, I see a lot of, you know, very common BCI and stuff like that that come in, you know, pet store snakes. Well, the, the units aren't always full either. And so just for grins, especially after those types of experiences, when I get boa constrictors in, I'll set them up. Guess what they do, guys? Mm-hmm. They, they perch. They perch, man. They, these boas just sit <laughs> really? there perched. I mean, they, they bask like anything else. You know, people are like, oh, I wish I, you know, I could have an arboreal. It's like, do you have a boa constrictor? You have an arboreal. Set it up like an arboreal. Watch it perch. You know, it won't, it won't always perch. It won't always but perch. But it might. You know, yeah. But, yeah, certainly they'll take advantage of that space when it when it's ready and when he wants to, you know, when he feels secure enough. Um, especially some of the smaller ones. It's hilarious. I put some of the, you know, like the neos in there that are just a few months old, and they've got these huge big branches, and you'd think, like, you know, that's the type of thing. You'd post a picture, and some asshole on the Internet would say, oh, that branch is way too big for that thing. Well, guess what? He's perching. <laughs> he's perching. He doesn't want your shots. He's, he's happy yeah, right yeah, there. Yeah. You're you're right. You're right. Because there's someone that goes out in the wild and makes sure that all the branches that are not the proper size are nowhere right. near this animal. Like right, <laughs> branch. You know, you know, he might wait. If I gave him an option to perch somewhere smaller, he very well might like that. But guess what? Given the given the choice between your shoebox and this big branch, he'd rather be perched. He's having so a ball. I, Who cares? He's having a ball. Exactly. And yeah. I, you know, I think that stuff is really telling. And and that's you know. Uh, to go back to your original thing about like how my uh, thoughts about keeping snakes has changed as a veterinarian, I guess these are the types of observations I get to make now. And, uh, and it's just, I don't know if it's changed me, but it's definitely shaping the way that I look at animals. You know, I think that there is, you know, we used to say like, if you can keep like they're eating, they're pooping, they made eggs must be happy. You know, that, that was used to be our criteria. Like (laughs) if, if it didn't die and it reproduced, then, this is as good as it gets, you know, and and I mm-hmm. I would challenge reptile keepers and, and I challenge myself every day to, to, you know, think like, OK, that's that's where we were a few years ago. Let's push it forward. How can we make it better? You know, and I don't mean like yeah. bigger clutches and fatter snake, you know, I mean, I mean, like, how can we, you know, we're challenging ideas about UV. I think probably more animals need UV than we even imagine. 
you know. And there's some guys at University of Illinois that have really pushed some of the science forward that have shown that animals like leopard geckos, a nocturnal species that for years we've said, these guys don't need UV light. Well, we've shown that if you expose them to UV light, there are blood work parameters that absolutely skyrocket. And it stands to reason that the moon transmits a ton of UV light. It's bouncing sunlight directly off of its surface, and there's a ton of UV light that comes from that. They absolutely use it. Um, some of the same parameters, parameters haven't been shown to be true in ball pythons. But, you know, I was talking to a guy recently that pointed out, you know, but, you know, you're looking at things like uh, vitamin D and vitamin D analogs. Those are not the only things that are potentially upregulated. I think that there's, you know, these are even ball pythons are out at night. You know, um, mm-hmm. just because we don't see some of those things elevated doesn't mean that they're not using light. I mean, reptiles descend millions and millions of years, you know, where their world was completely dictated by light and dark, you know, just like birds, which are also now reptiles. You know, I mean, these are these are animals that strongly use a photo period. I think I think we deprive a lot of our animals of light. And and I'll say, by the way, I think there's a place for it. Like if I get a, a stressed green tree python that comes into the clinic, no, I'm not blasting it with the light. You know, I think that a lot of these animals <laughs> right. do exist in the understory. You know, I, I'm not saying that every snake needs a light on it, but I'm saying I think every snake needs an opportunity periodically to get outside and bask. You know, I think that's that's something we deprive them of. It's a it's a very natural thing for them that they don't typically get. Um, you know, I'm I, I could get up on these soapboxes, but you know, I, case in point, I think there's a lot that is is changing. And, um, I think our attitudes about keeping snakes is going to change dramatically. And I think if we want to stay ahead of the reptile, the anti-reptile groups, the animal rights groups, I think we need to be staying on top of that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you hit a, you hit a point, that, you know, that point to me is like something that really hits home because I get, I get ridiculed. I get my, my, my balls busted all the time about like always thinking of like these crazy things. Like for instance, last week when we had this carpet round table, you know, I'm talking about do we need vitamin supplements for, for you know, we were talking about carpet pythons, but it could be pythons mm-hmm. in general. Like, you know, what about a varied diet? Like, you know, it, does, it, are they are they getting everything they need from, I don't know. To me, mm-hmm. if I'm eating, and I know that, 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 that again, they're a snake and, and you know, I'm a person, the, you know, mammal, reptile, <laughs> different, da-da-da-da-da. Yeah. But, like, it just seems odd to me that animals that, you know, and they're in the wild, they're, they're getting, you know, different prey items. Does this help? Like, you know, you'll see animals just drop dead. You'll see, uh, animals lay slugs, uh, you know, and we just brush it off as, oh, well, yeah, just, uh, you know, just the, yeah. the male got too warm or, you know what I mean? Just the, the, the go-to right. uh, answers that we've always had. It's never like pushing the envelope. Um, yeah. You know, and do they, do they need UV, UV light? You know, um, it just seems yeah. like if you take diamond pythons again, animals that are evolved around the sun, <laughs> you know, they're dark because they go and they bask to absorb, uh, you know, you know, absorb heat because they're in such cold temperatures. It just seems strange to like, that's what made me take them out of like keeping, even though they're still, you know, young, I just couldn't keep them in a rack because it just seemed to me that those animals need that light to bask, you know, I don't know. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, it's, a, it, it's a great point. And, you know, I think, and you're absolutely right. I think sometimes we take it a little bit too literally when we say, well, these guys are whole prey carnivores, so they get everything they need from their food. Uh, it's like, to me, that is partially true. 
you know, probably everything right. they need to subsist to survive. But you're absolutely right. I mean, in the wild, um, a lot of species, not all species, but a lot of species have hugely varied diets or they have, they have dynamic diets that change throughout the course of their life. You know, I think we talked about, we touched on this with the green tree pythons. You know, there's some evidence that, um, you know, juvenile green tree pythons probably opportunistically take invertebrates. You know, when was the last time right. we offered invertebrates to our, to most of our captive snakes, especially pythons, you know? Um, right. You know, and, and does this have developmental implications or uh, implications for uh, pubescence or, 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 we don't know, you know, is what it comes down to. Um you know, am I am I going to say, well, we need to be supplementing all of our green tree python neonates with crickets? Like, I don't know if I'm going to go that far, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, you right. could bust my balls if I said that. But I certainly don't think anybody should be busting your balls for, for questioning, you know, whether or not, you know, feeding nothing but an entirely rodent diet for the entire life of a snake is, you know, necessarily best, especially when they're, you know, a rat snake maybe for, for good reason. But, um, you know, not, I mean, not a python, not a, not a tropical species that has you know, so many different opportunities to take, you know, such a wide range of mammalian, amphibian, reptilian, invertebrate prey, you know, um, you know, I mean, could they be missing yeah. something? I think the answer is absolutely. Could, I mean, sir. I think it's about optimization, you know, it's like you can, yeah. you can have an animal that, yeah, it does, it survives and it thrives and it breeds and, you know, that's great yeah. and it lives, but is it, is it optimized? Is it like, are you optimizing every aspect and really getting yeah. that? I mean, it works with people and everything else. Why wouldn't it work? I don't know. It's just, you know, you are what you eat. No, you're, you know. Mm-hmm. The, Mark Mitchell, the same guy at Illinois who is pioneering a lot of this research, you know, he gave this presentation at one of these ARV conferences a few years ago and, you know, really was quite passionate about it. Mark's a very dynamic speaker anyway. If you ever get a chance to see him talk or read any of his papers, I mean, he's, he's, <laughs> brilliant uh but uh, you know he he is very quick-witted too and and i remember somebody probably somebody who kept a few snakes probably ball pythons you know let's keep picking on them uh you know but (laughs) you know in response to his you know talk about uv had said you know uh, uh, very interesting results sir but you know um we've kept these snakes for decades we have multi-generations they continue to breed and thrive and um, you know, I, I don't think you've demonstrated that these animals really need this, um, you know, experience would seem to show otherwise. And he basically said, I mean, put it right to him and said, listen, if your prerogative as a breeder is just to produce more snakes and you're comfortable doing this, that's fine. But he said, I'm a veterinarian and, and I'm a champion of animal welfare. And if I can, if there's anything that I can do to push the envelope forward and make life in captivity better and more enjoyable uh, and healthier and, and longer for these animals, then that is my prerogative. And basically just, boom, shut them down. <laughs> you know, and, I, and I, I thought that was, I love that. I was like, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, why do we keep these animals? You know, like, I mean, absolutely, they do something for us. But but to, to me, too, part of the enjoyment is is me doing something for them. You know, me giving back to them me providing an enriching environment where, you know, I, I'm happy if they're happy, if they're sitting in a tub and they're not thriving and they're not interesting to me, then they're no fun, you know, but if I get to bring a, sure. I mean, that, you know, at a fundamental level, that's what it's about, right? Is bringing a little piece of nature into your home. And if you have an animal that's just sitting yeah. there tail hanging and miserable and doesn't want to eat, uh, you know, and is dropping prey, like that's, I mean, that's stressful for everybody. You know, that's not, sure. that's not why you bring an animal in. And if you can make their, their life, their environment more enriching and more interesting. I think that's what it's all about. So, 
you know, yeah. I, I say kudos to you. Push it, push it forward. Ask the dumb questions because ten years from now somebody will think it's brilliant, and we'll probably all be doing it differently. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Awesome. Now we're we're cutting close on time, but real quick, I wanted to talk to you because I sort of have a bit of a boa bug at the at the moment. Um, I find that he's all picture like, of a pretty boa, and now he's done. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I, I find I've always been fascinated by both. I always liked them, um, but you know, yeah. as in one of the questions that I sent you is one of the things that that is in the back of my mind is this IBD and like it seems that mm-hmm. like people yeah. talk about boas with just IBD. Yeah. It's always sort of steered me in the direction away from them. I have uh, I have a couple pairs of boas, but um, you had I forget what the what the ones that you're working with, Legacy Red Line, Litter. I Legacy, think, what are yeah. they? What is that? Yeah. Well, so what are what is the Red Line or what are the Tamalipos boas or what? Uh, what does it all mean? <laughs> yeah, all, all of the above. Yeah. What is the meaning of life? Good. Um, Continue. <laughs> yeah. Well, so you probably know Legacy Reptiles, right? Uh, Joel, uh, Joel yeah. and Orlando Diaz. Uh, yeah, yeah. Or- Orlando actually is a, a veterinarian. Um, Joel is a veterinary technician that works with his brother. Uh, both of them awesome guys. I've gotten to know uh, Joel. Is spe- jo- sorry, I call him Joel. Joel, uh, I'm not pronouncing it properly. Joel is uh, awesome. He's he's been very good to me and taught me a lot at the. I, and I've enjoyed talking to him at the shows. Um, he is. Uh, they inherited a lot of Gus Renfro stuff. Inherited slash purchased. Um, you know that was kind of how. I think that's where their name comes from, and you could ask him, but I think that was the idea, was they were kind of carrying on Gus's incredible legacy uh, and, and producing incredible legacy quality boa constrictors, and that was the, the whole idea behind their operation. Um, but, yeah, the sleep boas come from cloud forests of northern Mexico. Um, some say all the way up into even, like, southern California. But um, they were a, a not, not an undocumented locale, but not a locale that was represented in captivity at all. Um, as of a few years ago, I think Gus and some other guys like literally just walked them across the border. Uh, there are no papers that go with them, unfortunately. So you can't say, Oh, these are real. These are authentic. But, um, you know, the stories go back to, you know, some of the original group that had them and that's where they came from. That's where they descend from. And, um, so, uh, Joel and his brother have a handful of pairs and they have this one pair in particular, both the male and the female, um, just have these fire orange bellies and, um, and so, you know, I was looking at the groups when I decided to, to get into these and uh, you had a, you know, a handful of males and females from this red line. And um, I, I guess I'm kind of one of these people that like, I know this is another one of those controversial topics we could spend hours on, but if I can avoid inbreeding, I do, especially if I've got, you know, a really rare unrepresented locale, I'd rather mm-hmm. you know, kind of start with as, as diverse a gene pool as possible. And, um, sure. you know, so I, I absolutely bought, you know, gorgeous female from this red line. And I mean, right off the bat, she's got a, just a, a fire orange belly. I mean, she's just a stunner and the male's got all the, the same dorsal markings and will continue to change and, and get increasingly more beautiful. But, uh, her colors and the pictures of the adults were just stunning. So it's a, um, the quote unquote red line just refers to this one pairing they have from these two exceptional animals, um, and uh, and I have one of those in my collection, and then the other one uh, is is from a, a separate pairing, same locale but different lineage. So I've got you know an unrelated pair at the moment. Um, cool. And and between you and me too, I've been under a little bit of pressure. Shell's been encouraging me to sell them just because um, I've I've not had 
I've not been working with as many boas. I just have the hog islands at this point, and um, you know, even even that project has been one that has uh, like I'm not planning to breed them right now, just because there's a very limited market for hogs. I think the Tamalipas will be. I'm, I'm hoping and expecting would be much more interesting, especially you know amongst uh-huh. the local people. But the hog islands are are pretty small, and we've got so many condors up and coming, just size wise. She's been kind of discouraging me from taking on any other snakes that are going to continue to get large. So they're yearlings and they're coming up in size. But, um, you know, if you were interested, we could certainly talk some more because I don't know if that's a project I'm going to keep forever, even though it was one I was really excited about a year ago and that I still think is super right. cool. Um, but boas in general, in terms of like IBD, I don't know that I could shed any light that's going to make it like suddenly more clear. It's very, very murky waters, even for veterinarians right now. Um, and part of that is just mm-hmm. because we're getting so much new information, um, particularly telling talk I saw Rachel, Dr. Rachel Marshan gave uh, at ARV last year. Um, she's a virologist, and um, with the full disclaimer that a lot of her lectures are like 90% completely over my head, um, you know, she's got these phylogenetic trees up there, and my mind is just wandering, and I'm like, this is, you know, like, I mean, she's brilliant, <laughs> but it's like trying right. to make it, like try to make sense of all the information is, is sometimes overwhelming, but at least one thing that she showed that was really kind of shocking was that some of the blood samples they were taking, and these were not from symptomatic boas, these were just from boas in, in Europe, Um that had presented for some of the reasons where they just happened to be doing blood draws. They tested like some hundred something samples and they found some shockingly high number. It was like upwards of like 40 or 50% were testing PCR positive for IBD. In other words, Oh my God. Yeah. Which makes you wonder, like, I mean, I don't want to make light of this, like potentially like devastating virus, but at the same time it was like, you know, it turned out to be one of those things like crypto where, you know, when something devastating happens, we can point our fingers at crypto. But then if you actually go looking for it, it's way more prevalent than we ever thought. And it's just sometimes we get unlucky. Um, and, uh-huh. and I don't know, you know, I, I don't mean to simplify it and distill it down to that. That's not like the nugget to take and, and regurgitate forever. But that's kind of like where I've been with this lately is like, you know, I, I don't know what to make of this. You know, we, um, I had been talking with a friend of mine that has been working with Pete Call, and we were talking about, you know, like maybe just for grins, because he had actually expressed some interest in, like, I want to test these, and anything that's positive, I just want to get rid of, which I think is actually very foresighted of him, um, or at least responsible thinking about that. Uh, And that that idea, to the best of my knowledge, hasn't really gone anywhere. Um, There was another veterinarian that was interested in working on the project, and I think funding was the big issue because he's got – several hundred something snakes and that's like $50 a piece to test them. And, um, or maybe some, I think he's got thousands of snakes actually. It was anyway, it was, it was a little bit logistically and, uh, and financially prohibitive. Um, but it, but it was right. a neat idea nonetheless. And it's, you know, the other thing is like, God forbid, you know, and what if, <laughs> what if 50% of your collection is IBD positive, you know, I, I don't I don't know what to make of it Ooh. at this point, Eric. I, I um I, I really don't know. I mean, if I get an animal that's symptomatic right. that's sick and I test positive for it, you know, we kind of have an algorithm from there. But as for like how prevalent is it in the United States, and is it something I need to be scared of when I buy a boa? I would I, I mean, my gut inclination just from years of experience keeping these snakes is like, yeah, no, just quarantine and be really careful, you know. Um, on the other hand, uh, there's still so much that we don't know. So much that we don't know. Um. I think that, uh, you know, I mean, I I keep just a handful of boas and I'm not like, I'm not like buying and trading all the time. And I'm not, I'm not trading boas like ball pythons and, you know, like livestock where I'm trading them every two months for new stock that, you know, I have just a handful of snakes that I got from 
small hobby breeders like myself that I quarantined mm-hmm. properly have, you know, um, and I, I guess I, you know, I've, I've treated those animals like they're pretty low risk. I will breed them. I will, I will sell them. I, you know, Sorry. represented as they are, uh, I haven't really planned on testing, but maybe I should, um, you know, I, I guess long story short, I wouldn't discourage you from getting boas, but it's certainly something to think about, especially if you have a large Python collection, you know, yes. <laughs> I do <laughs> That's <laughs> what you that's, do. You know, it's like, yeah, it, 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 I don't know. I, I really, like I said, right now I have a, basically my rule has been, and I don't know if this is a, a good rule or not, but if I see somebody that has boas that I know personally, um, that mm-hmm. also works with pythons and their pythons yeah. seem to be okay, then yeah. to me that's sort of a, a good parameter to say, okay, well, yeah. okay, I, I give it a shot. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think it's reasonable. But, and that's actually an interesting point, um, you know, because I have, I have a rack full of, you know, half boas, half pythons, and I haven't had any issues yet, knock on wood. But, again, you know, right. I'm not moving things in and out, and I've had my hogs for half a actually more than half a decade now, you know, and, right. um, and they came from a small friend who got them directly from, right. Oh my God, Vin Russo. So who knows, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, okay. Yeah. Well, we could definitely so, talk more about the Tamalipas. I think they're, I think they're a really, really neat yeah. locale, really cool cloud forest species. Yeah, definitely, uh, definitely cool for sure. So, uh, Owen, just going to hit yes. on the uh, closing questions real quick before we just get cut off. Uh, so go for <laughs> it, Owen. All right. So, Brad, if you could work with any species without any type of restriction, be it legal or money, what would it be and why? Oh, I think I got asked this before, and and I don't I don't know if my uh, answers have changed or not. Man, I'm still dying to work with Tuatara. Uh, you know, I, I'm a snake guy at heart, but I just think that would be so cool. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. we have we have lizards and we have snakes and we have turtles and we've seen like a million variations on that. I just can't imagine getting to like hold another like like tetrapod reptile that actually doesn't fall into any of those groups. You know, that's completely yeah. unique that like kind of looks like a a lizard in a picture from a distance, but is way more dinosaur than anything else. You know, I just think they would be so neat. I actually have some friends that have been to New Zealand that have worked with them. Um, I'm like infinite, infinitely jealous. I hope at some point in my career, I get a chance to see them firsthand, but um, yeah, no, I think cool. those are super cool. Um, I, who who doesn't like dream of Bowen's pythons? I would love to be able to work with them too. Um, I, I just, I couldn't right now, you know, space limitations and things like that. I think again, that's one of those species where if I wanted to do it, I w- would want to do it right with huge naturalistic, you know, mm-hmm. high humidity, cool temperature, you know, kind of high elevation cloud forest enclosures. Um, and, and, and I can't right now, but I, I mean, kudos to, oh, and you've got some, don't you? What, Boland? Yeah. No. <laughs> no. No, no, uh, no, no. They're, they're one of those, like, but. God, it would be, it would be awesome, but. I, the money that you for yeah, the exactly. babies versus the space yep. that they need, and you know, right. it's one of those. Yeah. I can fit two Bowen's cages in that corner, or I can fit like five carpet python cages. So <laughs> it's yeah. it's one of those things. Uh, I'm waiting for Eric to bite because then 
he'll get them and then he'll be like, these are awesome. Told them and then I'll be done. So what what yeah. I keep trying to stop myself right now is uh, if if I get left alone for too long, Timor pythons are going to be here and then I'm going to be screwed. Oh uh, yeah. So yeah, <laughs> those, are, those are cool. Super I super cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's, but I think that's that, I mean, hole. you know, we all have like the short list, which includes mm-hmm. like 19 species. I mean, I could go on and on, but <laughs> yeah. I think those are two that are up there. You know. Yeah. There's all. I'm I'm still I'm looking for my next Gila. I love Gila's. I think those are super super cool, highly underrated animals. Um, you know, I'm a little disappointed by like all the people on the internet that like post pictures of the new Gila, the new baby Gila they just bought, and they're like totally free handling it. I know it's like one of these species where it's like you it's almost look like animal. a dork when you're wearing gloves, but it's like guys, yeah. it's a venomous animal. Like please don't. Venomous animal. You <laughs> know, it it is. You know, I know uh, people don't uh, die from it, but it's it is. <laughs> don't be stupid. Uh, I, used, I used to work with them at the zoo that I worked with, and they were so much fun. And yeah, so e- so easily defeated with two hooks like under their armpits. They yeah. like you hiss hiss, and then you pick them up, and they're like, "Damn it!" And they just kind of hang there. And I guess like, I'll just sit here for hours. All right, super fine. We're going someplace. <laughs> I, yeah. So and that's I would love a pair of them because I thought they were so cool. Yeah. So yep. all right. Brad, if you could go herping anywhere in the world without restrictions, where would you mm. go, and what would you hope to find? Oh God, I mean, well, it's kind of a no-brainer. I'd probably go straight to uh, Papua New Guinea or, <laughs> or New Zealand <laughs> to look for exactly what I just said. But, exactly, uh, both the animals you just saw. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, you could you could drop me down with a. Uh, you know, some short shorts and some knee-high leather boots and a snake hook, just about any jungle in the world, and I'd be pretty happy just to truck around and, you know, look, for, look whatever there is to find. I'll tell you what, too. I've, um, I have I think crocodilians are really cool, and I have uh, admittedly, like, a lot less experience with them. Um, mm-hmm. I, could t- I could tell you some funny <laughs> funny stories of me with crocodilians, but, uh, you know, that would, be, that would be cool, too, is to go and see, you know, some – uh, go to India or something and see some gharials, see something like really yeah. unusual. I know there's a few species out there that unfortunately are really, uh, really struggling and on the decline. And um, it would be neat to be able to see them in the wild while we still can. Mm-hmm. That would be cool. I would like that actually. All right. So if someone wanted to contact you, what is the best way to reach you? Do you have a website, a Facebook page? Yeah, actually, this is a really great question because, and my apologies, my ap- uh, apologies if uh, if the people who did contact me are listening. Facebook has this like dreaded other folder, and I think they recently renamed it, but it's just as shitty. Um, and it's basically <laughs> where like if you're not my Facebook friend and you send me a message, I might not see it for weeks. And I, I yeah. recently found like a few questions about like oh, my snake is dying, like how do I send it to you? And I, it's like January third. I'm like, well, that's awesome. Uh-oh. Um, so I look like, like, yeah, like I look like a t- an incompetent douche that like doesn't care yeah. that, you know, that, that your animal is like not doing well. Um, but uh, yeah, so there's a lot of ways to reach me. Um, probably, it, I, actually, this is a really good question. If if it's a clinical question, if it's a question about the health of your animal or about sending me an animal uh, or or about doing a phone consult with me to talk in detail about a sick animal. I would contact me through the clinic. Um, that's the fastest way to reach me because I'm at work almost every day. Um, and the the name of the we- the clinic is called Churchland Animal Clinic. We have uh, a, a website that I'm 
really praying we'll get cooler right now. It's very cookie cutter. Uh, we've got a new mm-hmm. practice manager who's kind of revamping a lot of that, which I'm excited about. Um, but it's it's a very cookie cutter website right now. It doesn't have any reptiles on it. So if you just see like a bunch of dogs and cats or pictures of like female veterinarians, which we don't even have right now, um, <laughs> it, it actually is our clinic. It's churchlandanimalclinic.com. Um, I think my name is on there somewhere, but you can uh, you can just request a like an email or you can request a um, an appointment and there's like a, a thing all through the website that you can do that. There's also the phone numbers on the website and I'll give that to you now. It's area code 757-484-2733. And again, that's area code 757-484-2733. If you call that number, you'll get one of the receptionists and just explain, you know, say, Hey, I've got a reptile or whatever. I wanted to talk to Dr. Brad about setting up a console or about shipping it to him. The receptionists are actually very well trained and like, handling a lot of that they may not be really familiar with the species if you've got something really unusual but um know how to set up the appointments for me or how to arrange the shipping or whatever so um or how to set up a phone console or whatever so that's probably the quickest way to reach me if it's just you want to talk snakes and and this is the other thing that i've run into that's a little weird lately is like sometimes people just want to chat or ask kind of a, a cool question about breeding and stuff like that and i'm not against that like like I, I was a snake keeper long before I was a vet and I don't mind people reaching out to me out of the blue, cold calling me like, Hey, what worked for you? Hey, what do you think about this? Like I can chat snakes all day. Um, but don't take advantage of it, please. <laughs> it, takes, it takes a lot right. of time and I get a lot of random questions where, you know, it starts as like friendly, just shooting the shit about some snakes. And then like, it suddenly turns into like, Oh, by the way, what do you think this is? And there's snakes like blowing bubbles. And I'm like, uh, I can't, I can't help from the picture. <laughs> like, yeah. Don't you you need to do more. But but I am right. you know I, I I'm my full name on, on Facebook Bradley J Waffa, um, and of course Waffa House Reptiles. I, I respond to messages on both of those things. If you're not my Facebook friend already, it might go to the other folder, and apparently it might be weeks before I see it. But um, you know, be persistent or try me at one of the other places, um, you know, or, or friend me, and then you know we'll talk some more for sure. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Very cool. Well. Well, so guys, thanks again for uh, having me. This is this is all, yeah. this is always fun for me. I don't mind this at all. <laughs> um, no, it's it's, <laughs> it's cool. And and <laughs> nobody's uh, nobody's like called. That's why we, you know, probably when we get people calling in, uh, that's when this uh, it'll get really old. People will call in and uh, you know, your, your doctor Brad's an idiot. And he, <laughs> it's not the right temperature. He's talking, he's blowing smoke. <laughs> people start calling me out, and I'm going to get really embarrassed and have to have to. But, no, uh, this was a lot of fun. Um, thanks again for having me. It was uh, a pleasure and an honor, seriously. And, uh, yeah, um, I'll have to look more into Carpet Fest. It would be really fun to come down and see you guys. And if I don't catch you there, then uh, Michelle and I are hoping to be at Tim Lee again this year. So we'll look forward to catching up. Definitely. All right. And there's there's multiple Absolutely. Carpet Fest, so find your closest. So. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. cool. Well, thanks again, guys. All right, well. You have a great thanks. night. Awesome. Right. Thank you. Thanks, Brad. All right, take care. Bye. Okay, Owen, we are against the clock. We'll run quickly, real quick. That was that was an awesome show. Good stuff. Absolutely. Uh, We'll have to have him back sometime. Shout out, real quick. We're looking for pics of jag carpet pythons. I'm working on the uh, the website, and I need pictures of jag carpet pythons. We're going through morph by morph and and hooking up the section, and we're going to link the episode uh, that we do on the individual morphs, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So if you got some pictures of jag carpets, could be adults, neonates, 
different lines, bloodlines, not bloodlines, scratch that, different lines, um, uh, send them on over. You can send them to me on Facebook or email them at info at moreliapythonradio.com. Um, uh, give a shout-out to uh, GTP Keeper Radio. They're going to be doing a show with Tim Morris on the 31st. January 31st, so be sure to check that out. As far as us, MoreliaPlaytimeRadio.com. You can check us out on iTunes uh, if you don't listen to the show live. Uh, If you have any questions, comments, uh, guest suggestions, et cetera, et cetera, then send it to info at MoreliaPlaytimeRadio.com. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter, uh, MoreliaPythonRadio. There you go. Um, da, da, da. and do us a hand and help share the show and spread the word so people and uh, can get the good good information from these great uh, breeders and keepers that come on the show. Uh, as far as myself, E.B. Morelia, ebmorelia.com. Uh, if you want to get in contact with me, Eric at ebmorelia.com. Go ahead, Owen. Uh, rogue-reptiles.com, rogue-reptiles on Facebook.com. I'm going to be at Oaks. If you want something, call me. That's all we have for you tonight. Goodbye. See you all next week. God damn it. Go. <laughs> <laughs>